You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Jackson are every man's fantasy. Hug you and kiss you. Love you, George. I want you so much. I'm glad we knocked on your door, George. Oh, that music sounds wonderful. But if you're not careful and you turn the sound way up, you could break a lot of glassware. And one man's nightmare. Wow. When Donna and Jackson play, they go all the way. The highlight of the evening is a very special game, Death Game. The object is to stay alive. Donna and Jackson have a game for the man in their lives. A game he'll always remember, but never cherish. The court is now in session. The defendant is charged with two counts. Statutory rape. Well, I'm going to take a quick shower and get nice and fresh for you. Two counts. Assault and battery to minors. I want to make love to you. Two counts. Perverted and unnatural acts to minors. He started chasing me all over the house. I tried to get away, but he was too fast. Yes. And he threw me on the ground, and he started to hit. And then he ripped off my blouse. <laughs> the court finds the defendant, George Manning, guilty. Here's your blouse supper. You better eat it. It's a little while you're going on a very long trip. Donna and Jackson love to live, and they love to play. Their way. Death game. The object is to stay alive. Welcome to a special edition of the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Nicholas Schlegel. Hi, Dr. Nick. Hey, Mike. How are you? The Schlegel can be a mouthful sometimes. On this special episode, we are looking at a pair of films and a whole lot more. 1977's Death Game and 2015's Knock Knock. Both films tell the story of a man whose wife and kids are out of town. He's visited on a rainy night by a pair of nubile girls who seduce him and who won't leave the next day. In fact, they kind of refuse to leave, and then they spend the rest of the film mentally and physically torturing him. (laughs) Funny enough, though, Knock Knock is a remake of Death Game. There are a number of films that also share kind of the same storyline. We'll talk about those along the way, but first, I want to ask... When it comes to Death Game, Dr. Nick, when was the first time that you saw it, and what did you think? The first time I saw Death Game, beginning to end, because that's the important thing there, because I saw, I think I saw bits and pieces of it growing up on late night television, because I had a severe and still have a very severe crush on Sandra Locke. Uh, she was just one of my major crushes as a, as a, a kid of the 70s. Uh, I saw her in a lot of films, you know, in, in, in things like 
Uh, I think the first time I ever really saw her was on the big screen in Every Which Way But Loose. But, you know, I even prior to that, I had seen her, you know, in like Willard and um, Outlaw Josie Wales. The Reflection of Fear, for example, was another one that was uh, uh, usually part of syndication packages with Robert Shaw. It was definitely, you know, uh, Every Which Way But Loose where she just kind of lassoed me. And I just I've just been a, such a, a big, huge fan ever since. Death Game, I was an adult. I was probably maybe close to 30, so maybe like 15 years ago, when I first, I think, got my hands on a clamshell and watched it. I couldn't quite grasp what I was watching. It was so interesting and so bizarre and so weird and such an odd mix of things, a mix of sort of disparate elements, particularly in its use of like the score and the tone of the film, which I I can't wait till we talk about how the tones contrast between the two films. I just became entranced by it. And in particular, I think Colleen Camp and Sandra Locke are just a, a volatile and toxic duo. They are so good in this film. And, and, uh, I don't think, you know, the other actresses really, unfortunately, uh, stand up, I think to the, the, the power of their performances in it bought the dvd when it came out you know there's a couple of versions of it out there i think there's a better one coming out but this is what the uh cinema pops <laughs> whatever it is the uh the one that you typically see on like amazon and other places which is a four by three presentation from a pretty you know dupey i'm guessing maybe 16 uh millimeter negative maybe 35 i don't know it's very dark but it's very watchable I mean, that's kind of my history with it. I'd, I'd be really curious to see what your history is with the film, and even though we've talked about it before. The, the listeners don't know. I had never heard of this movie at all. And then every once in a while, my friend Rich Osmond will send me a VHS tape, and he still sends me VHS tapes, believe it or not. Will send me a VHS tape of a movie, and it's basically like you need to watch this now. You need to watch this as soon as possible. So those are usually gold. Things like Over the Edge. Oh god, yeah. Things like Tourist Trap, Mm -hmm. and one of them was Death Game. And I put this in. It was probably about ninety six or so. Put this into my VCR, and I could not believe it. Just. Just those opening credits, man. I know, yeah, that's great. For folks who haven't seen this movie, it starts off, well, it starts off with this very kind of like ominous, you know, title card about, you know, true events and all this kind of stuff. And just this kind of like almost moralistic warning, you know, don't let this happen to you kind of thing. And then just this goofy fucking song starts, man.
my god and i was just like what the hell am i watching and it's all these like crayon Crayon drawings drawings, of kids and parents and this good old dad song just chugging along and i could not believe this and then when it gets into george is there with his wife and they're playing croquet and everything just seems so surrealistic right off the bat. And this is an American film, but just everybody's voice is dubbed, but mostly Seymour Cassell's voice completely dubbed. dubbed yes. Hey, what'd you think of Diane's fancy eyelashes? I thought they were so long they were practically in her chicken soup. At this point, Seymour Cassell, he's never been a household name no. or anything. But you would see him pop up in things like um, Coogan's Bluff or an episode of Columbo. But he was really kind of having a renaissance at the time. He was one of these guys who was really down with Cassavetes back in the day. And then he was in with these this new group of filmmakers. He was in In the Soup by who was uh, Alexander Rockwell. And he was kind of having this career renaissance. So it was like every time I would turn around, it'd be like, oh, Seymour Cassell. Yeah, Cassell. the name would pop up everywhere suddenly, you know. And, 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 then, and then that renaissance, like you said, later in his career, too. And here he was with this completely different voice because just Seymour Cassell does not sound like this guy sounded. No, it's pretty jarring. It's weird. It's jarring. And it's, it, 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 with Keanu Reeves is sort of screaming. Seymour Cassell is is his, his the person who dubs him is almost like he's had a Valium, you know, or like several Valiums throughout the film, it, it, and and it's like he just doesn't seem to be protesting enough, you know. But by the way, did you know that Seymour Cassell was born in Detroit? No, I did not know that. Hey, he's a local boy. Yeah, I would never have guessed Cassell being a Detroiter because he always seemed to have kind of a almost more like a New York kind of thing, or at least maybe that's because I saw him in a lot of those Cassavetes films and he seemed to be adopting that kind of, you know, sound to him. Kind of like a Tom Atkins sort of uh, stalwart seventies, you know, actor yeah. uh, interchangeable in a lot of different character roles. I pray to God, I said, God, please, dear God, don't let anything happen to her because I love her so much and I'll do anything you say, God. And man, I don't even believe in him, you know? So, yeah, it's just this weird kind of, and you're right about the video quality of everything, like even on DVD, and of course I'm watching this on VHS, at least a copy of a copy, it might have been even more than that, but everything is just really muddy, and just the way that they're shot, him and his wife, and with this croquet game, it just feels like everything is almost wrapped in a dream, almost like the foggy bridge of of, uh, San Francisco, of the Golden Gate, you know, And, and it feels like the whole film to me sometimes is in this fog yes yes it's almost like you know laszlo kovac shot it and he's like he's been he's fogging it or something you know it's like it definitely gives that there are some films that where i wound up wound up finally getting a clean copy of it they kind of lost a little bit of their magic because the sort of really shitty ratty versions i had been watching were so sort of indelibly sort of etched in my mind uh, that now that I could see everything and it was properly color corrected and I could see into the corners and stuff, it, you know, I can think of several films where it kind of spoiled it. Actually, most of the time it's the exact opposite. You can't wait to get a, an HD presentation of a film, you know, that deserves it. But, uh, and, and I, and I can say that I'd love to see death game all cleaned up mainly because of Sandra. 
I'd love to see it just in its correct aspect ratio. When you look at a lot of the shots, the way they're framed, you know, the 4-3 is, is literally cut off a tremendous amount of these two shots. They just become sort of like one shots. Well, yeah, and the guy who shot this, David Wirth, who actually dubbed the voice of Seymour Cassell, he was a terrific cinematographer and, and still is, but he, you know, that was like how he was making his bones at the time was doing cinematography. So he definitely, you know, can shoot this stuff. But yeah, what we're seeing, especially on our tapes and our, uh, you know, incorrectly, incorrectly formatted DVDs is just not really representative of, of the work that he had done. Perhaps it was you, Mike, or uh, recently, I mean, just posting on Facebook or something. I saw that somebody's putting shout factory or somebody's putting this out, uh, uh, you know, and it's in, in a, in a <laughs> better shape. I think I had heard that grindhouse releasing okay. was putting it out. And then when I went to grindhouse last time, okay, I, I just did a search and I managed to find it again on the site because for a little while there, it seemed to be missing, mm -hmm. but it is still out there. I don't know if I'm supposed to actually be seeing this page or not. Um, <laughs> when I click on the, the logo and it takes me to the index page, it gives me a 404. Okay, nice. Uh, okay, there we are. So it does. it's totally a reformatted site when I go to the regular site and there is no death game on the left nav anymore. Uh, so I'm not sure. And then I emailed Bob Morawski, and I haven't heard anything back from him in a long time. We've been trying to get him on our show. We want to do the swimmer, and oh, his wife is like an expert on the swimmer. Gosh, the, the Lancaster film? Yeah, yeah, that was a favorite growing up, too. And I want to say that my former podcast partner, Mondo Justin, is actually doing a book about the director. But anyway, back to Death Game. Mrs. Manning takes off. And we've got George Manning left at his house here and uh, just kind of enjoying, you know, having a bachelor weekend, which we all like to do. You know, all of us married guys love when the wife goes out of town because then you can just fill up on chips and dip and ice cream and watch all kinds of shitty movies and do whatever you want to do. But lo and behold, here comes a knock at the door and it's these two young girls soaked to the bone and they're lost and can they come in and use the phone place and here's the introduction of sandra Locke and colleen camp and you may like sandra Locke, but i've always had a thing for colleen camp especially in these early movies of hers things like swinging cheerleaders oh, yeah. and no, no, agree. apocalypse now agree. yes yeah lover lover she's definitely the more innocent of the two though not by a whole lot <laughs> right and they come in and they get their towels and they're trying to make their phone call. And then they start admiring George's awesome hi-fi and his record collection. Yes. And I do like that that kind of carries through into death, uh, into knock, knock just a little yeah, bit me there. Too. Me too. I like that thread of continuity. It's slightly altered, but yes, I, I totally dug that. God, it's not even very long. I think it's what, 20 minutes we're into the film by the time we've got, the girls seducing George in the shower. Yeah, and that's it's, it happens pretty quick. I mean, he plays some sort of like Barry White type stuff, and, and uh, you know, and and before you know it, they're they're yeah. I mean, he sort of walked in, they're buck naked. I just wanted to say that it's interesting right then and there that just the tone, how how different these films kind of start off, despite the fact that they're using the exact same bare bones plot. Sort of like the step outline of the script reads the same for both films. It's just really in sort of the, the dialogue and tone of things. Like in, in Death Game, the tone is is very 
I mean, I can imagine if it was the 60s pre pre Manson murders, it would have been even more sort of like, come on in, you know, but like it's 70s. And even still, there's only just the slightest bit of trepidation on his part to let them in, you know, because uh, it's just sort of like, yeah, sure. Why not? But but in, in the remake and knock knock, almost from the word go, you just don't trust these girls, whether you know anything about the film or not. They just seem to have con written on them and the big cons coming on and uh and so keanu's like immediately just doesn't want to let him in you know and and yet in uh the tone of death game is like um uh, yeah what the hell come on in. <laughs> no big it's just like no big deal you know and i bring that up just because i want to i want to come back to it later too not just uh, tonally, but also the the sounds on the soundtrack are so markedly different oh. between these two two movies. Just because Death Game has the best primo porn type soundtrack yeah. in the seduction so scene, so like not even the porn versions of the same story have as good of music as this scene. Agreed. What the hell's going on here? Why don't you take your clothes off and hop in? Oh George? no. Thank you. No, thank you. Come on in. Why do you hop in, George? Girls, uh, Take your clothes off. Join the no, party, No, thank George. you, girls. Uh, 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 Come on, no George. No way, girls. Please. No, thank you. Come on, I'm a happily married man. I want you, And good old dad is such a great track. And then, of course, that other track that that runs throughout the film, so it kind of sounds like Roberta Flack or something. I, you know, it's sort of like that theme that plays at the end of the film. That's it's a really well written song that one gets the impression that it was probably written for the film. I think tonally they're so different, and yet uh, music plays kind of a big part in both films. Uh, but in Death Game, it really is sort of a it's 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 very the music's very much of its time and yet it seems timeless at the same time so george is totally dtf and gets it on with these girls and i kind of want to take a little a little step to the side if you don't mind and talk a little bit about another movie that was kind of similar to this they covered this on mystery science theater years ago and i don't even know if it's really it was like one of those mike movies where they would cover movies that weren't necessarily of the same bad caliber as you know like the joel era there were a lot of movies that they covered where i'm just like wait no this was actually a really good movie and for me kitten with the whip was one of those movies it's very similar to Death Game to a point, and we can kind of take it up to that point, and I'll explain the differences. But it's very it, – it's it's John Forsyth as this – I want to say he's like a senatorial candidate or a governor candidate, and his wife is away. 
surprise, and in comes Goldilocks, in comes Anne Margaret. She breaks into his house and goes around and like literally like tries one bed, tries another bed, and then <laughs> finally makes it into the third bed. And she has this uh, pulls up a teddy bear, so she's very much the picture of innocence here. And it's great the the opening shot, like like the credits shot that they have the almost a freeze frame of the teddy bear almost seems to be like crying for help in her arms. It's kind of great. It's got this great score to it. Amazing credit sequence. And Margaret is just absolutely gorgeous, but it's just her, right? So you don't have that interplay of the two girls, but it's very similar as far as, okay, you're here. There's no sex. He's not sleeping with her. He is a very, you know, stalwart. They don't actually have sex in the film. Correct. But there's this whole idea of if you come near me, I'll scream rape and I'll ruin you. I'll ruin your political career as well as your marriage. So he kind of has two things on the line with this and he keeps running into people and like he tries to do the right thing. He goes out and he buys her clothes and comes back and then takes her down to the bus station, drops her off. And when he comes back, sure enough, she comes back as well. Mm -hmm. And then she keeps lying about things like, oh, you know, I escaped from this place but the woman was really mean to me. Oh, wait, I escaped from this place, and this woman was really nice, and I sure do miss her. And then he finds out that he like that she almost blinded this woman when she broke out of this institute and stuff. It takes it to a point, and then after that, it kind of becomes much more of a juvenile delinquent story where she introduces her friends to the story. They come in, and it's like her old man and these other two guys and this other woman, and they're very, like, I mean, the whole like, Hepcat speech, I guess that's more like MST3K could really have fun with that. From there on, it kind of breaks. But th- those seeds are the there. The seeds are there. You know, I have not seen Kitten with the Whip. The 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 one film from that era with with Anne that I I think I just was a, kind of a classic bait and switch from it, it was uh, as a sort of international co production, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, The Tiger and the Pussycat. I bought that um, with Vittorio Gassman. I bought that at, like you know at Suncoast, probably in the like early '90s. Because of its, uh, maybe it just had a provocative cover, and and it was Anne Margaret and stuff. And so from that era, that was the one that I watched. Basically, Kitten with the Whip. I've just been studying the last few days online on looking at clips on on YouTube and stuff. And yeah, it's definitely um, you can see that Peter Trainer. At least it, it appears that this might have been a film that he had seen, or that it was something that inspired him. Well, yeah, there's that line where she's like, "You be daddy, and I'll be mommy," right. and that whole daddy mommy thing comes up in all of these movies. Yeah. Now, did you get a chance to see Little Miss Innocence? Yeah, I mean, I, wa- I watched that in fact today, probably around uh, noon today. I was watching that and. Yeah, I mean that's that's also clearly a template, you know. I mean, even even more so in the fact that there's there's commonalities between like um, you know the uh, the 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 music. It's a, in this case it's Hitchhikers, but it, it again it's sort of just you know uh, kind of a low budget exploitation film or kind of sex exploitation, uh, focusing on uh, you know elements of sex and stuff like that, but. I thought one of the more interesting things that that you would you would mention to me was that uh, Ray Dennis Steckler's fingerprints were on it, you know. <laughs> so and and quite literally since it was since he helmed the, the the photography of it, 
but I'd be curious to see what your thoughts are about Little Miss Innocence and and sort of like this slow build up to to um, to Death Game with these little these like analogs and these progenitors that come before it that all have these same themes but kind of coalesce and come together in one magnificent film like Death Game. Little Miss Innocent was also known as Teenaged Innocence, which I think, or sorry, Teenage, not Teenaged Innocence, which they probably have to stay away from titles like that these days. Even if they're 19 or 18, you probably don't want to name your your movie, your non-porn movie, Mm -hmm. anything with the word teenage. This is definitely sexploitation. Mm-hmm. It's not as hardcore. There was a, a remake of Teenage Innocent, a straight hardcore. I watched that today, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of sex yeah. in that. That was just straight up hardcore, yeah. Yeah. And really kind of lost some of the subtlety. I like the performances in Teenage Innocent. I love the theme song. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Miss Innocent theme song. You know, you mentioned he's a music arranger, and so that becomes a, a the, the backdrop for the film. And it, it, it really does share a lot in common with just the film's five to ten years earlier, the the simple sexploitation stuff that sort of emerged out of the nudie cuties, you know, with a, a basic threadbare story that sort of just propels the, the sort of like light, soft core sex scenes one to another clearly the seeds again but more fully formed are there for the arrival of death game a bit later which is this weird confluence of kind of like you know high production values with 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 uh, name actors but sexploitation exploitation origins and themes the performances i think are really top-notch especially our main character, Rick Ingalls, who's played by John Alderman, who definitely is wearing some like graying stuff in his hair. There's no way he's nearly as old as he looks. He, he reminds me a lot of Dennis, Dennis Weaver. Weaver. Yeah, good call. I don't know. He, he's put out by these girls. He's not married, though, as far as I know. So he doesn't have that level of blackmail. So we go from John Forsyth, who could be ruined by in his marriage and his political career, to this guy who really has nothing to lose. So I think that they did it right in Death Game by just kind of, uh, kind of limiting it to he could lose his wife. Yeah, exactly. And, and lose his wife and son. Yeah. Death Game then becomes sort of this very weird after because I you know I watched it over the weekend uh, Sunday night when I got back from doing some travel. I rewatched Death Game, which is something that I do. I don't know, every couple of years anyhow, you know, what struck me now is I was watching it more from, you know, just straight up analysis standpoint rather than just as a fan of the film was it's sort of how this double cautionary tale going on there. There's sort of like of giving into sin and the repercussions and damages that, you know, temptation and, and can cause and. And from from in this case, two women that are you know clearly damaged and psychologically un- unbalanced and have, have, have suffered and, uh, you know, are not they're as- acting in sort of sociologically irresponsible ways, to put it mildly. But then there's sort of like the, 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 the back end cautionary tale, how the film ends and stuff. So it's just this weird sort of um, caution, sort of like Aesop fable with a Rod Serling twist. <laughs> Well, we should probably get into a little bit more as far as 
what happens to poor George. These girls, they do not want to leave. I don't know. I'm reminded, I even like went so far when I was writing a review of this film to actually write it out as a poem in the style of Dr. Seuss, okay. because I was completely reminded of the cat in the hat with this. Yeah, sure. And they are basically, well, they're both cats in the hat. They're Neither one of them are thing one or thing two. And he <laughs> tries his best, kind of like... John Forsyth like takes him down to San Francisco, drops him off. You know, I'll do whatever it can, I can to get you two out of my house. And yeah, because they're like these forces of nature inside of his house. They're there, like making breakfast and making this huge mess out of everything, though not nearly as much mess as they'll make later on with food. Oh God, yeah, that's always a disturbing scene. I mean, I've never seen someone so. I mean, I I, I get claustrophobic watching that scene. I've never seen that much food piled onto somebody where I was like, they're going to suffocate from ketchup or, or flour, you know? The interview with David Worth later on talks specifically about that scene. Okay. So, so yeah, he, he dumps them off and then, yeah, he comes back and they're already back. It's almost like a cartoon kind of thing, like, you know, chasing the person around the world kind of thing. So the, he comes back to the house. They're already there and they just won't leave this guy alone. And pretty soon they start laying out the whole thing. Hey, you fucked us. We're under 18. Yep. We are going to ruin your life. All we have to do is call the cops and that's it. You are going to go up on statutory rape. And, you know, so he feels now kind of in this weird blackmail position where they want to do whatever they want. And it becomes this like weird, I don't know, I can't say battle of wits kind of thing, but it's just like pretty soon they're tying them up. They're having sex with them. I'm usually not a big fan of of uh, the titles of a lot of 70s exploitation, regardless of whatever, if it's sci-fi or horror or sexploitation or, you know, cheerleader, whatever it may be. Often, you know, the titles are just generated, uh, for, you know, for, for pre-booking and sales uh, or, or to get on a poster or whatever. But Death Game in its simplicity actually is a really apropos title for the film. It becomes one giant death game. You, like you said, it, because what, what, what is it? A battle of wits? Not so much. I mean, he's constrained most of the time. He's got this sort of like fear of being blackmailed or feel fear, uh, fear of, of, uh, of going to prison. And he's, he's clearly, you know, he's cheated on his wife. But what we're not aware of is, is whether or not uh, Sandra Locke and, uh, Colleen Camp are serious or not, because they play it with a lot of verisimilitude. The idea is that we're supposed to believe that they're basically unhinged. They're playing him, and they're psych- you know they're like psychotic. They're, but are they? It, it becomes the question. You know, like what is this? And and so I think Death Game kind of becomes like this really appropriate title, even though it's kind of inelegant and simple. It works so well. It becomes one giant freaking Death Game. Well, and it also helps give them the air of being unhinged by the way that they start dressing. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And Jackson, uh, the Sandra Locke character puts on this like crazy eyebrow kind of thing that goes up and swirls around on her face. Just, it's it just absolutely bizarre. One of the most unique makeups. And, and if you notice, if you do, if we do a little like gestalt, you know, closure, uh, theory of closure on that it kind of it actually forms a heart which is the yeah weirdest thing no it yet. totally does so she's dressing up and really starts to put on these airs of being a man because she puts on a, a top hat and a suit coat and has this 
strange makeup on her face. And then Donna, the Colleen Camp character, kind of becomes like this almost a mommy type character, but really much more of a daughter character. And her sex scene with George, when he's tied up and she starts talking about, you know, how he would come into her room at night and how she was the best daughter ever. And I want you to love me. So creepy. I want to go home, but I'm not one of their either. That's why I ran away. Were you be nice to me? I only wanted to love you, Dad. Ever since Mama brought you home, I loved you. And then one night, Mama went upstate to visit her sister, Aunt Betty. It's in my room when you went to bed. I took off all my clothes and I tiptoed down the hall. I pretended to be asleep. I only wanted to love you. Maybe you're not angry with me anymore. Are you daddy? Are you angry with me anymore? I only wanted to love you, daddy. It's from the day that mama brought you home. I, I loved you. That's why I ran away. <laughs> Will you be nice to me? Maybe you're not angry with me anymore. For since mama brought you home, I loved you. I only wanted to love you, daddy. You pretended to be asleep, remember? You pretended to be asleep, remember? I crept in beside you and I did things to you. I drove you crazy. What? I drove you crazy. <laughs> I did things that you never even read about. I did things you never even read about. And that's what I want to do to you right now. That's what I want to do to you right now. It's a powerful scene, but yeah, it's crazy. It's completely nuts at the same time. I don't know how the film goes from zero to 60 like that. It just, it, you know, the minute they sort of put on their makeup and that all comes from, yeah, after he wants to dump them in San Francisco, right? So they come back and then everything unhinges. It just turns into, and of course they wind up putting him on trial for what he's done, but clearly it's, it's much more of an extension of male on female crimes that are committed crimes of violence and sexual crimes. And so it becomes this sort of, he's put on trial, as the film starts to progress, he's 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 con- continually constrained, and they just play this again death game with him. And what's ha- hanging in the balance then suddenly becomes whether they're going to execute him at dawn or not, you know? And they prove that they are very serious when it comes to death because there's a delivery boy who doesn't make it out alive, and there's a cat that doesn't make it out alive either. Yes, that's right. And yeah, looking at these pictures of Sandra Locke with that makeup on, I can see the heart, but I can also see just this air of like Mephistopheles. Yeah, and you see. I think it's weird because you see both. If you do the, if you sort of like close the lines. It becomes a heart, and yeah, but that's that's secondary, and I'm not sure what that could possibly mean. I could, you know, I could come up with a few things, but no, you're right. It's sort of the Mephistophelian sort of eyebrows, and Sandra's just magnificent in this role. I, I always tell my friends if they want to see just a, a magnificent role from an, from an up and coming actress uh, who got an Academy Award nomination in her very first film, you know, they need to check out The Heart Is a Lonely Hunter, which is one of my all time favorite novels. And films, you know, Sandra's just just devastatingly good in that. And she's just fabulous in this film, too. She writes affectionately about it in, in her autobiography, The Good, the Bad and the Very Ugly. Uh, you know, she talks about it being a professional shoot and kind of a breeze and fun to do. And uh, of course, you've got a, an exclusive interview with her coming up, which I can't wait to hear. The one thing that we didn't touch on 
that is one of those other moments. Like we we did talk about the awesome porn music during the seduction. <laughs> talked about you know good old dad, but the other thing that just makes this film a little bit more unhinged is the way that they talk to one another. This is just nuts, Nick. Because really, Nick, there's no need for anyone to possibly say someone's name, Nick, as many times as they say <laughs> it in this film, Nick. Do you understand what I'm saying, Nick? I, Mike, I think, uh, I think, Mike, I know exactly what you're saying, Mike. Donna. Look, Donna, last night just happened. I thought you liked being affectionate, George. Maybe not in the morning, huh? Come on, George. Let me hug you and kiss you. Love you, George. I want you so much. Donna, let me get dressed. It is crazy. We actually turned this into a drinking game because of how many times they say each other's names. Particularly George, right? How often do we hear that? So, yeah, it was it was uh, uh, one sip of beer for George. It was one um, like drink of beer for Donna, and you would take a shot for Jackson. Jeez, wow. That sounds yeah. like a major hangover. I, and we probably should have done something very special for Agatha, but that didn't happen. <laughs> I'm wondering if, like, uh, if people played this with Titanic and how many times Jack and Rose are said. At least you got three hours. I think for alcohol. Yeah, I mean that might just be pure, pure like uh, respiratory failure. I think the alcohol would kill you. <laughs> Jack, Rose, Jack, Rose, Rose, Jack, Jack, Jack. Why did you do that, Jack? I don't know, Rose. Bro. You realize as you're watching this. I never say the name of people that are around me. Like somebody comes in at work that morning. You're like, Hey, how's it going? You never like, Hey, Chris, how are you, Chris? Yeah, I agree. You know, I mean, it's usually when you're trying to get their attention. You get <laughs> called their- right. So yeah, good point. I never noticed it that much more so with George. Yes, I did. But I mean, I'm wondering how, how intentional that is, you know, because it does create this very stilted, dialogue uh you know this sort of beat structure to the dialogue which is so ornate in the first place the way they talk um gosh it's so it's such a unique little film when they murder that delivery boy and he's just there going jackson no no it's murder it's murder (laughs) (laughs) and then of course then we get the we he didn't in 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 the you know in the remake he didn't do anything call 911 he didn't do anything call 911 <laughs> one more thing before we we go ahead and take this break i i did want to say we were talking about that food scene cuz there's a, a there's so many ways that they end up torturing george and one of them is this kind of like almost food orgy that they're having and i was really reminded of chitlova's uh, daisies when i was yeah, watching that yeah, yeah me too and i saw your note yeah absolutely i'm glad it wasn't just me no 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 i did you want to elaborate on that at all or just with daisies there's so much of just these two girls again with the two girls and just them being bad basically and doing all of these things and i think one of the the ways that they kind of show that they are being bad is by indulging in excess i mean it, you'll see something like that again in uh the what la grand bouffe or whatever the the one where michel piccoli eats himself to death right. with the other guys but yeah in this one is just you know conspicuous consumption conspicuous consumption yeah and that is you know it starts with that close-up of the ketchup bottle 
Uh, that's not actually the first, that's not the food torture scene. That's sort of like the foreshadowing of the food torture that comes later. There's that uh, ketchup bottle that's sort of, you know, been been tipped over. And then we get a very long lingering shot on on, uh, on Jackson's leg and as it goes up to her. And things just, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's I guess, you know, I know we're, we're going to be moving on. And my final, in the final analysis for me, Death Game is just one of those great sort of, it's not marginalized. It was not a marginalized film. It just wasn't a very well-known film. You know, it was, it was uh, barely on the, the lips of, of like, you know, cinephiles and stuff like that. I think for me, it was something I came, you know, quite honestly, this is me around maybe 1985 or six as a teenager, uh, flipping through, we'd just gotten cable coming across something late at night and going, there's Sandra Locke. What is she up to? What the hell is she wearing? And then I was hooked. And that's kind of <laughs> kind of how it all started for me. I do want to warn people, I know this is a very late warning in the show, but we will be getting into major spoilers. We will be talking about the end of Death Game when we come back from our break. And we'll also be talking about the end of Knock Knock, which is uh, available fairly readily now. It's out on on demand, so you can get your hands on that. And then also with Death Game that's out there, and uh, it's right now, as of the this recording, since it hasn't really been brought back, restored, or anything... There's a version of it that's out on YouTube. I would say just go out and knock yourself out because you really have to see this and you need to see the film before we talk about the ending because that ending just left me completely gobsmacked. (laughs) Gobsmacked, yeah. Uh, So good, so good. So let's go ahead and take a break. We're going to play a trio of interviews that was supposed to be a quartet, but unfortunately we didn't get Colleen Camp for this one. First, we're going to talk with Death Games producer Larry Spiegel. The second is with Jackson herself, Miss Sandra Locke. And the third is with the cinematographer, the editor, and the voice of George, David Wirth. Do you mind if I ask you, how did you get into the business? Uh, I, I started at CBS, and um, uh, I kind of lied my way to a job as a gopher. From there, it went. Um, the path it was just uh, took me to where I am. It was a very circuitous path. I knew I always wanted to be in film, and um, CBS at the beginning was a very good training ground, and then I went into advertising and um, worked uh, at a couple of agencies in New York, which were top-notch agencies, and I really learned um, a lot about filmmaking. Um, It was a great time to learn about film in advertising at that time, Uh, just just after the Mad Men era. And um, uh, I started writing and eventually came out to L.A. from New York. That's how it all evolved. One of the earliest things that I see um, that you got credited for writing was Book of Numbers. Yes. That was an interesting experience. Uh, that was the second film I had written. Um, I, at that time, I was represented by William Morris in New York, and they sent me up uh, to see the producer-directors. He was an, an actor whose name was Raymond St. Jacques. He was fairly well known at the time uh, and um, he uh, I, I was given I was given the book upon which the film was based I had read the book and um, I had a take on how to do how to make it into a screenplay and um, they bought the take and um, it was Joseph Levine Joe, Joe Levine who was a major producer at the time um, and uh, they hired me to write the screenplay 
uh, Raymond, uh, Ray St. Jacques said to me in, in joking, you know, how uh, it would be like, he said, if it, would, it would be like asking me to write about an Orthodox Jewish family, how would you write about a Southern black family? You know, but I managed to do it well enough, I guess, that um, uh, the film was very well received. It made not a dime, and it fell into complete oblivion. Uh, but um, it was quite well received. Yeah, I absolutely love that film. Really? So it, yes. I haven't seen it in 30 years, so... Uh, it my... still holds up. Oh, good. Good. What was it like working with Racing Jock? He was such a great actor. He was a difficult guy. It wasn't easy, but um, uh, we got the job done. I, I learned a lot on that film about working with people in this business um, uh, in which ego is very important. Um, and um, uh, I, I, I grew a lot from that experience. Can you tell me what was it like working on Hale? Well, that was the first film I ever wrote. Um, and I wrote that with a, a, my writing partner, who eventually became the uh, president, I think, of BBDO. Um, he was a very, very close friend of mine, uh, Phil Dusenberry, who passed away a number of years ago. Um, that was... Um, that was a lot of fun because it was a New York shoot. It was all New York actors. Uh, the director was an extremely successful commercial uh, director. Uh, it was his first foray into features. I think it may have been his last. Um, but it was a lot of fun to do. The film came out okay. It was a, pol a political satire. It was a low-budget political satire, which, again, got some good reviews but went nowhere financially. I really liked Richard Schull's performance on oh, that. You really did your research. It was so strange. There was uh, like such a little pocket where people were making movies that were kind of lampooning Nixon, and that was definitely one of them. So I, I was uh, very happy to find that, and I like Richard Schull a lot, so I really liked his performance in that one. I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm shocked. I, you know, I don't know how old you are, but... Um there was an incredible anti-Nixon fervor at the time, um, and, and uh, not quite like uh, the hatred toward uh, President Obama. It was a different kind of dislike. It was a more civil dislike, let me say. Um, but um, uh, and we, Phil, Phil, Phil and myself really felt it, and so 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 did Fred, the, the director. You worked especially doing doing the writing for a long time after that, you know, doing some after-school specials and Return to the Planet of the Apes, which also I, I loved quite a bit. How did you go from doing the writing into doing the producing and directing? I had moved to California. Um, I, I had written the pilot of the ABC after-school specials, which, which became at that time uh, a very heralded series um, uh, and um, I did actually, I think, three the first year, three the first two years. One was had Jodie Foster in it when she was a child, and um, they, they were very successful uh, in terms of um, the press that they received. It's really funny because Mike Eisner at that time was um, the president of, or no, he was he had a program with the president of ABC or something like that. But what happened was I was at, at that point here in LA. I was represented by William Morris, and they sent me actually up to see Peter uh, to get Peter a pitch. Uh, I knew a great deal about production by that time because I had spent years as a producer in, in, uh, in television commercials. And um, 
Peter, I was doing a shoot uh, in Vail. He was about to do a shoot in Vail, and he asked me to come up there and um, not produce the film in any way, but kind of supervise the supervisor. And I did. I went up there and I, I uh, up to Vail. And after that experience, uh, Peter asked me to come to work for his company. I mean, as a producer, as a writer, as, as a kind of a jack of all trades. What was your next project work to work on? We did a couple of horror movies. Um, one of which is probably among the worst movies ever made, um, and um, we also laugh about it. And we did another. We did a, uh, at that time there was black exploitation film. We did that thing was called Bogard, and um, we um, we did a we we did a, a number of films, small films. In those days, these films were privately financed. There were tax shelters available in the United States, and um, that's how Peter raised raised the money. Peter is a very ambitious guy, crazy as a loon, uh, but in, in a lot of ways, in very good ways. And he was an extraordinary guy in many ways. I still can't get over the cast of Bogart. Just so well, many really great have people done in your there. Research. I ought to have you sit right here because you're filling in my memory. I know Richard Lawson was in the movie. A very young Dabney Coleman in there. Right, Dabney was in there. People were hungry to make movies at the time, and um, they, um, it wasn't that difficult to cast. It was, that was a lot of fun, that film. Tell me about Death Game. How did that one come about? Somehow Peter became in touch with Joe Hyams. She was a writer. And she, she, I think her husband or she, somehow they were attached or they were friends with Clint Eastwood, who actually owned the property at the time. It was called Mrs. Manning's Weekend. Peter bought the rights from El Paso and um, wanted to make the film. And um, Sandra at that time was still had an involvement with Clint. The Joe Hyde script was re rewritten completely. And as I recall, but I don't have a perfect memory of this, uh, although there are two people who are listed as the writers, I don't think, I think there's pseudonyms, or at least one of them was a pseudonym. Um, and um, I know that I had a, uh, I'm not saying this with great pride, but a, a significant hand in the rewriting of the film. And um, uh, then um, uh, Peter raised the money. Um, and Chandra was aboard, um, and uh, Colleen was cast, um, and uh, Seymour Cassell, and um, the, the the location. There used to be a like a clothier here in L.A., a big one, um, and he had a house in in um, Hancock Park, and we took over the house, and that was the location of the film. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I want much attribution here. Okay. <laughs> Is it a very sensitive area? Yeah, is it? Well, I, I, you know, I haven't seen Peter in 20 years, and um, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to, um, you know, I was an employee of the company, and you know, the company had some problems um, subsequent to this, and um, uh, you know, there were some unfortunate, uh, unfortunate happenings as a result. Uh, and um, I think there, yeah, I think there was some retribution uh, that was um, visited upon Peter that I think was grossly unfair. Um, uh, uh, at least, you know, given the space of time to reflect on this, which I have for a couple of years. Colleen called me a couple of years ago about the re about the remake, and. Um, 
you know, we were all very young and we were all very high on ourselves. You know, we were doing, we were making movies in, in LA and, uh, it didn't matter whether they were inexpensive or big studio movies. It was just exciting, you know, to be in the film business and to actually be making films as bad as they may have been. It was still a, you know, a great experience to, uh, to have a crew and to, um, you know, just see the camera roll. Someone call action and it's really, you know, it was great. I left right after that film was done. Uh, myself and another guy who worked for Peter, uh, who was in the fundraising business for Peter, uh, we went and we started our own company. I am so impressed by some of the films that you went on to produce. I am a huge fan of Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Well, I'm sitting right across from my partner, Judy Goldstein. We both, yeah, it was a film that, uh, we love that film. And um, we actually went on to make two pilots of that. Um, and neither one, one of them was actually scheduled to go on the air. We were jumping for joy. Uh, and, um, uh, Roddy McDowell actually played Chun, is that right, Judy? Uh, in, um, the pilot that was actually, I think it was for ABC. And, um, they actually announced it on the air. And I got on a plane to celebrate with my father and my family. And by the time I got off the plane, they had taken back their on air commitment. But, I mean, it, it still raises its head in just for many years. Uh, that was a partnership that we had with Dick Clark. That was just it was a great experience all around. Yeah, that movie is just so killer. I mean, Fred Ward and Joel Grey, those two together. And just, you know, Ward was just so underrated to me. He's always been so good. I see him occasionally uh, He uh, on television. He was actually in a small, he had a small part in True Detective. I think the second season, um, but it was, you know, it was a film. Again, unfortunately, Orion didn't really have, um, uh, they, they didn't have the juice uh, to promote that kind of a movie. They, they were very good at making other kinds of movies, lower profile movies, important movies. Um, but uh, I don't think they were up to that kind of a film, distributing that kind of a film. Oh, we had a lot of support at Orion. Um, Mike Medavoy Mike was very supportive of us, and, um, but I don't think the company itself had a lot of uh, juice in that kind of um, in that kind of distribution area. You know, a big event kind of film. Oh, before I forget, I wanted to ask you about um, your writing and directing of Spree. Right, that was the first film uh, that. Um, uh, we did uh, after uh, Mel Bergman and I left um, uh, Peter. We uh, we produced and directed it. It was again a low budget film, it was a teen kind of exploitation film, not sexual exploitation. Yeah, it was it was it was a good experience. We shot it in Mexico. It was on that film uh, that I got to know Judy Goldstein, who's been uh, my partner now for 30 years. Uh, it, 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 that was a very good experience as well. And it was my only directorial experience because life got in the way, children and mortgages and stuff like that. And, um, but it was it was it was a lot of fun to do. Though I think you are credited in some circles as being the director of Evil Town. That was a picture with Peter. That picture had a couple of different names, and that is, um, in my opinion, and I say this actually with some. Um, laughter and actual pride, but you could definitely put that film in a contest for the worst film ever made. 
I've read actually several people's names as being listed as director. Was that one of those like? Yeah, did it pe- was. People kind of pick it up afterwards, or how did that work? It, it never. I, again, it's very hard to recall, but I, it never got. It never got. Its original filming, I don't think, was ever completed. Then we we raised our some extra money was raised to kind of fill in the pieces. That that's what happened. I think I came in at that point to direct the, the supplemental parts. Sorry, going back to Spree, it must have been something working with Peter Graves and Ray Land on that one. I uh, yes, um, Ray Land uh, treated me like I was a um, um, uh, boy. You know, boy do this and boy do that. And we always had someone. We always had someone just beneath the frame. Keeping him, keeping him erect, so he wouldn't fall down drunk. <laughs> Judy at that time was not my partner, but um, one of the gold medals that she got as a result of that film was kind of sneaking into his dressing room and replacing a lot of the gin or vodka with water. I wanted to ask uh, about the credit on Knock Knock. Was that kind of like an in-name only credit, it or was, were you actually... In- it was in-name only. I've been curious about that because it seems there have been so many interviews with Eli Roth about the film, and he keeps talking about how he's influenced by Polanski and this director and that director. And I'm like, but you're not saying Death Game at all. It just seems so strange. You know, I have no idea how um, it actually came to be made. I know that Colleen, that was years ago, three, four years ago, maybe longer, um, had called me about it. I thought it was really a great idea to do a remake. And uh, she's got incredible persistence. She gets things done. And um, uh, she's, she hung in there and she got it done. I give her so much credit for that. you interested in acting? Well, I grew up in a small town in Tennessee, and, and it was, when I say small, it was small, and uh, the only thing in the town that was caught my imagination was the local movie theater, and I think that was it. I just uh, found it just a, a magical place, and I want, I thought, you know, I want to do something, something, I want to make movies, <laughs> you know, I want to run away and make movies <laughs> when, when I grow up. And, um, and I think that was, it. that was really it. I was a complete movie fiend. I saw everything. I mean, not everything came to the Prentice Theater in Shelbyville, but whatever came is, you know, I saw at least once and sometimes twice. 
Did you get involved in acting in high school or in was high that more school? Of a college? Yeah, in high school, I was doing. Uh, in fact, I was the. <laughs> I had the the great honor of being named the best actress in the state. Your schools had competitions, and and you'd go to the local competition and the regional competition, and if you won, you get to go to the state competition and. Uh, and so I actually, we, we, our play won and I won Best Actress. So it was kind of exciting. How did you end up being in The Heart is a Lonely Hunter? Well, that was like, uh, some kind of destiny, I think, because, um, it was just in the, in the paper one day. I just was just graduating from high school. And it was in the paper that, uh, there was a nationwide talent search for, uh, an unknown to star in The Heart is a Lonely Hunter and which based on the Carson McCullers novel. I got a copy of the book which I had not read and read it very quickly so I see you know, knew the character a little bit. So I, I got all sort of done up and with uh, a pigtail and looking, uh, you know, trying to look 14 because the character is younger than myself. And uh, I went to auditions in Birmingham, found out where the auditions were being, and auditioned there. And um, then I was sent to New Orleans where the director was, and I auditioned for him there. And then they flew me to New York, and eventually I got the part. Marion Dougherty was, uh, who was kind of well-known for for finding people she she discovered John Voigt and uh, a, a lot of actors that you know we who were successful subsequently and um she was sent by Warner Brothers around the country to all sorts of cities and auditioned i guess according to her thousands of people so it was kind of exciting and they never did a screen test i never actually had to do a screen test i just did a lot of auditions originally joseph strick was the director uh i don't know if you know who he is but he had directed ulysses and um he was a very very erudite intellectual person and uh he cast me and then um he and alan arkin had a falling out for what reason i'm not sure and he left the picture uh, before it even started so then everyone who had been cast by him was kind of you know up in the, it was up in the air whether or not they would stay with the picture so i had to fly back to new york from tennessee and meet the new director who was robert ellis miller get approved by him and fortunately i thought oh my god i've gone through all this and waited and waited and auditioned and auditioned and got the part and now i'm not going to have the part but fortunately he kept me he did recast some of the other characters however so that was that was it and then you know we shot in selma alabama where a few years about five or six years prior to that there'd been all of the uh the riots and everything so it was kind of it was sort of an amazing kind of miraculous experience. In a funny kind of way, it it felt like I was finally where I was meant to be. I had never felt at home as a child and I just didn't really even relate to much of many of the most of the people around me or you know the um the town itself and I just was a bit of a dreamer and 
uh, you know, fantasized a lot. And and suddenly when I was on the movie set, I mean, it was super, super, super exciting to find to get the part. But once I was there, it just felt normal in a crazy kind of way. It felt like I remember George Wong Howe, who was the cameraman on that picture, the famous George Wong Howe, who shot black and whites many years earlier. He said, how do you know how to hit your marks since you've never been on a set before? And, uh, you know, it was just one of those things that felt very natural to me. I just automatically understood what I was doing. It was just uh, instinctive. That must have been something to be your first big role and to be nominated for an Oscar and so many other awards right out of the gate. Yeah, it was. And I remember on the set, uh, the a few people, including Wong Hao and the director, were sort of saying, oh, you're going to get nominated for this. And I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. It was enough just to get the part. But uh, sure enough, I, I did get nominated. And I'm glad that it happened in the beginning of my career, really, when everything felt magical and didn't feel, you know, there I hadn't become jaded <laughs> about how Hollywood works, you know, it just all seemed very innocent. It's like, oh, I gave that performance and, you know, I I was noticed, but then I learned very quickly that it that was a rare situation and those situations don't come up in Hollywood that often. Yeah, I was curious if that kind of set you up for you know unrealistic expectations like okay next role I'll get nominated as well or maybe I'll just win with the next one you know I never really it felt that way I never really it was I, I've always been rather despite the fact that I lived in a lot of fantasy as a child and loved movies and everything and fairy tales etc I I never really I was always very grounded I never was thrown by all the reviews I got or and, you know, at the same time, then the bad reviews didn't bother me. Uh, so I've always been rather grounded, and I didn't really expect – I hadn't. I absolutely knew I was not going to win, and that was okay. And uh, I didn't really – I could tell instantly that going for an audition or meeting in Hollywood was very, very different than what I had experienced as auditioning as an unknown because they're really looking at performance and can you can you be this character and you know once i got to hollywood i realized that it really doesn't work that way it's really very political and it's very much about today especially it's very much about you know how much money did your last film make and you know are you on this list or that list or who do you know and uh and and i I sort of picked that up right away, that it was very, very political and very much about networking and socializing and everything I hated to do. So I thought, I mean, truly, it's really a miracle that I've had the career that I've had because I really never wanted to be part of any of that. I never wanted to be. I was always, I always felt like an outsider and uh, I never really networked. You know, I never really said, oh, you know, you need to know this person and that person. I I didn't, I I was not ever, I never knew how to do it. It just was so foreign to me that I didn't know how to do it. So I just kept banking on, well, you know, if I somehow do good work and manage to get some work, then somehow I'll have a career. I mean, really, that's the way I looked at it. 
when you were playing some of those early, early roles and things like Willard, uh, Reflection of Fear, Second Coming of Suzanne, what were some of the things that attracted you to those roles? Well, I really set out with this idea, which was very antithetical to the Hollywood system, that I wanted to do something totally different every time. I, I wanted to show my versatility. And so each one of those films had the you know, opportunity for me to be very different than I had been in The Heart of the Lonely Hunter or I had been in, you know, Run, Shadow, Run. You know, each each time I tried to find something very, very different, and that was extremely hard to do, A. And B, it's really not how to get ahead in Hollywood. They want to know who you are. They want They want to mark you. They want to put you in a slot, and that way they know what to do with you. But if you try to be too versatile, I mean, once you, if you if become like a, I mean, men get to do it more than women, I think. But if you get into a certain position where you're bankable or something like that, then you can try to create your own, you know, your own films and your own, you can, you can do a little better at it. But especially if you're, if you're a working actress or a beginning actress, they just want you to do the same thing you did. Oh, we saw you do that, and that's why we're hiring you, because that's what you do. And I kept trying to do the opposite. I kept trying to do, like, for instance, you mentioned Reflection of Fear. I mean, it was so completely different. The character, you, you could hardly know it was the same person, really. I, I mean, I think. And I was very proud of, of the work, but nobody really cared that I could do that. They just wanted to know what box they could put me in. I mean, like all the films I made with Clint, if that, initially nobody would, would even think of me for anything that wasn't a, a, um, a, a fragile sort of um, ethereal character or, you know, a dreamer, that sort of thing. And then, and then once I started working in with Clint and you know, to his credit, he gave me uh, an opportunity to play characters who were tough. And then all of a sudden, I became like the tough girl. <laughs> you know, every it's almost like to, totally people totally forgot Reflection of Fear or totally forgot The Heart is the Lonely Hunter, in a sense, in terms of casting, and thought of me as this, well, she's this hard-boiled American actress, you know. <laughs> in fact, I read that description of me in some, you know, some book of, of of that was a biography of a lot of different actors, and I was in there and I read it and laughed because that was the very opposite of what I started out as, and what I was I was I was pigeonholed as the opposite until I had a chance to do it, and then I was pigeonholed into that. <laughs> it was uh, it's it's a it's a it's an interesting ride. Is it just a weird coincidence that? You started working with Clint Eastwood with Outlaw Josie Wales, 76, and that he had done a few films that were uh, written by Joe Himes, and then you end up being in a movie that's based on a Joe Himes script? It was totally coincidence. I, I mean, I, I didn't know Clint at all. I mean, I, had, I, had me, I met Clint originally for uh, the role of the girl in in Breezy. I mean, her. I think her name was Breezy. I think that was the title of the film as well. And he did not cast me. Somehow, I don't even know how I met Joe Himes, but Joe Himes 
sent me that script. And then it was titled Mrs. Manning's Weekend. And I thought it was a really good script. It was very Hitchcockian, and it was a great part. And, and it gave me the opportunity to play a completely different character, where I was an insane girl. I was just like, she's completely insane, this character. And and but unfortunately, they it got rewritten. And once I hired on to it, every, the whole pic, everything changed about it. The director came on, and he didn't, you know, to be perfectly honest, he had never even been on a movie set, nor did he have any clue about directing or making movies. And it was crazy, crazy chaos. Seymour Cassell and I were trying to sort of. Uh, direct the film without his knowing we were directing the film and direct the other actors. And, you know, I mean, it, it was quite a challenge, but in in some ways it was sort of, it was fun playing the girl, but you know, he ruined the film, the film as a whole. is So I was really stunned when recently I, I was contacted that they were going to remake it. And now it's, uh, I'm sure it's a great deal better than the original. I have not actually seen the film yet, believe it or not. It's called, now it's Knock Knock, called Knock Knock. What do you remember that early script? I'm very curious how projects change from one thing to another. Well, it was more suspenseful. It wasn't as um, exploitive. It was very creepy. It was creepy and and, and, and suspenseful. These two girls show up... Uh, and these were the days before cell phones, so they were caught in the rain and they pretended that they had lost the address or they couldn't find the address of the house they were supposed to go to, and they wanted to ask if they could come in out of the rain and make a phone call and use the, use the telephone, and and that that was sort of the 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 deception. They went in and slowly but surely they start manipulating the man who is alone for the weekend because his wife has gone down to her mother's or something and taken their one child. And that's why it was originally titled Mrs. Manning's Weekend. Um, so we, the, the other girl and I are, are, are pretty, actually turn out to be psychotic. And we, we then um, sort of kidnap the man in his own home and uh, just sort of torture him for the weekend and by initially trying to seduce him and then torture him and threaten him. And it was, it, but it, in the original, it was done in a very creepy manner and you really thought they might kill him. The way it was done by this director, it was, it just became silly and exploitive. Uh, I mean, it was fun for me playing the character, but the whole thing was kind of, for instance, it, it became comedic, really. I mean, I felt like he had, like the, 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 the guy that he had, there was someone who was delivering groceries and he cast a stand-up comedian. It was like, I can't even remember who it was. And they had to recast it and redo it because it was, it just didn't work. And, and the whole thing was just sort of turned into a cartoon. So that was really disappointing, but you know that's the way it goes. It, it you know you you can, you can you can never have a great movie without a great script, but you also cannot have a great movie without a good director. 
you know, you just you just can't. It, it's a script and the director, and that everything extends from that. And if the director wants to change the script, rewrite the script, then you know you're just off to a bad start. What was your relationship like with uh, Colleen Camp and Seymour Cassell on set? Oh, we were we were all great together. We we tried to form a you know a union <laughs> against against the director who didn't know what was going on, but. Uh, we were we were all good together. We were trying to figure out how to make it work, and and I was uh, directing Colleen half the time off off camera, just off camera. I would uh, uh, you know tell her what to do. She loved it because it, I think that might have been her first job. I'm not sure, but it was if not, it was very close to the first job. So it was uh, it was altogether an experience that I that I hoped to forget and that no one would ever see and then of course <laughs> they, they actually remake it obviously they had to change the script quite a bit because um because uh you know everything is you everything has changed the social networking and everything is so different today than it was then the premise was had to be different now is it true Cassell didn't come back to loop his lines because he was mad at Peter Trainer. Totally true. He actually tried to punch out the, the director at some point during during filming. I mean, it was really it was a, an intense experience on one level and a comical experience on the other. The the director used to love to eat. He used to, he used to have us eating in every sequence, and I would try to remind him. Don't you remember the scene that comes? We didn't shoot it yesterday, but it's a scene that in the film happened yesterday <laughs> so we're gonna have back-to-back eating scenes I mean, it was just that kind of not just madness but seymour was great and he didn't he he was so angry that he did not come to loop his line and the lines and the um so therefore his entire performance had to be looped actually the cameraman came in and <laughs> looped his performance I mean, is that the craziest thing you've ever heard? But that's what happened. Talk about a Hollywood experience. David Worth, who was the cameraman and the only really real true professional on, out of the group, in my opinion, is um, he he did a really good job with the with the photography, and he was very smart. He went on to direct some films. He he did the photography. I got him uh, on Bronco Billy, a job as the cameraman on Bronco Billy. He did a great job. And um, then he went on to sort of direct a lot of small pictures. He was talented. I mean, he, not necessarily as an actor, but <laughs> but he managed, he managed to say the lines anyway. But uh, it it was pretty crazy. You just never know. I know when I, you never know what to expect when you go into something or when they release it. When I did, I only did Willard because I was talked into it by Bruce and by the director and Danny Mann. I didn't really think it had much to offer me, but Bruce said, oh, come on, Sandra, do it with me and it'll be fun and blah, blah, blah. And then Danny Mann, come on, come on. I really want to work with you. And come do this for us and so I, I decided to do it because at the time I wasn't doing anything else I guess and um, I thought well this is just a 
little film that nobody's going to see. And I remember, <laughs> I remember being out of the country at the time uh, when I when it rele- when it was released. And when I came back in, I remember in New York seeing this big hit, Willard. You know, box office, blah blah. And I I was like in total shock. <laughs> it just goes to show I didn't really know much about. What 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 uh, what was going on and what wasn't, you know. <laughs> Just so you know, we around here, my wife and I, we actually play a little drinking game with Death Game because of how many times you guys say each other's characters' names. Oh, do we do that? That is one of my pet peeves. That is abs- every time I get a script that says when everybody calls everybody by their name all the time. I said this is unnatural. Nobody does this. I don't. I don't, I don't say your name every time, my good friend, every time we speak. I don't say your name. I hadn't realized that, was, that that went on in that film. I haven't, of course, seen it. I don't even know if I ever really, truly saw it. Can you tell me about how you got involved with The Second Coming of Suzanne? I had just done Reflection of Fear, and I don't know. Uh, I, was so, I was such a huge fan of Leonard Cohen, and Michael Barry... Uh, came to me, and I had just finished the other film and was looking for something, again, that was very different from what I had just done. And, of course, the character Suzanne is pretty much different from any other character you could find. And and uh, I don't know, I liked Michael. I thought he was probably, he was on to something. It was very artsy and very sort of um, metaphorical. And I thought... Well, this would be an interesting experience. It was. It, it promised to be more kind of European, and I'd always been a fan of European films. And so all of those things just kind of convinced me to do it, and I was uh, available at the time. And um, it was like a short shoot in San Francisco, and I thought, well, why not? This will be interesting. Uh, I'm not sure the film ever really made sense to me, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, it was it was fun playing the character. How was that movie received when it came out? I don't think it it was understood at all. And then it did well in some festivals. I and I didn't really follow it too much. I don't think it ever got a very big release or anything. And I think it was more it was sort of looked at as a little art film and got some good reviews, but for the most part, just vanished. I'm surprised that, you know, it comes up now and then, and I'm always a bit surprised. You had been in the business for um, over 10 years when you finally took to the director's chair. What brought about that decision, and how did you decide to go about, uh, as far as what kind of director you were going to be? I was, uh, I think, in working with Clint, I was very um, involved with the whole process of making the film, from the pre-production, the casting, the, the, the editing, and everything. I, I sort of was always hanging around through all those things that I really wasn't uh, involved with. And then, so a combination of that and finding it all very interesting to me, and I, I thought I was at the same time getting a little... Uh, finding acting a little boring because uh, there just wasn't a whole lot that was that I seemed to be able 
to to get. And so I just thought I, it, it's just something I was just drawn to it, just organically. I always liked a couple of different kinds of film. I saw myself as as a I loved film noir, which is why I chose to do Impulse as my second film. Rat Boy was kind of, it just struck me as special. And uh, I uh, was given the script by an agent. Simply, It was meant to be just a sample of this writer's work. And I kind of fell in love with it because, well, as I said, I grew up, it had two elements about it that really hit me. One was the whole Hollywood game of everybody trying to use everybody else and manipulate and scrounge and, you know, thinking only of self, self, self. And the other element was the kind of a, a fairy tale character in this little rat boy and the journey that he made through all of that kind of, you know, the, the, the world of Hollywood where everybody was trying to use him. And then particularly my character who, who, who sought to sort of make her fame off managing this rat boy and making him a movie star in like horror movies. And, and but she has a, a sort of, um, um, coming of she 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 comes to understand who she's been and how she's hurt him and then she helps him escape all the people and the press and the everything in the end and it it just struck me as a as as a fairy tale that was set in the midst of Hollywood which I had at that by that point found to be <laughs> having a really dark side to it so it was. It, it became a bit of a dark comedy. You have such an amazing cast in that film. Yeah, yeah. It was a. It was a. It was a good cast. I wanted to ch- do a lot of things differently, and I wanted to cast. Uh, uh, I, I wanted to. I, actually, one actress or known person that I wanted in the film was Joy Behar, and I wanted. My idea was because I found the characters of the two brothers a little bit redundant. And I wanted to change one of them to a, a female character, and I wanted Joy Behar because I thought she was very funny, and smart, and interesting. And but I wasn't uh, I wasn't allowed to do a lot of things that I wanted to do. I wasn't allowed to, to use locations I wanted to use or make changes in the script that I wanted to do. And so there are a lot of disappointments uh, for me in my work on that film, but there's still a lot that I'm proud of about it. But, you know, that's that's just kind of the way it goes, I guess, sometimes. When you say you weren't allowed, was that more of a studio interference? Well, it was actually more of a Clint interference, and that was that was sort of the beginning of the end of our relationship, I realized, in hindsight, because uh, he we had had the relationship of, of director, actress, you know, kind of parent-child, which that relationship sort of is, the director and the actress. And in many ways, he really did not want me to succeed doing it. And so I think he did everything he did. And also, 
perfect to be perfectly frank he he's very controlling and and so he just felt the need to he i really didn't even think that he should be involved to, to tell you the truth and i had i had set it up at warner's and they did not require him or his company to be involved and i thought i should have a completely different producer and a different company attached and but i think that he had the he wanted he had the need to control and so he, despite what I convinced, I, what I tried to explain to him would be detrimental to me, uh, and even to our personal relationship, uh, he, he, he would not hear it. He wouldn't hear it. He was going to do it. He was going to put his name on it. And that was that. And then he wanted to control everything I did to the degree that it was unreasonable. It was not producer director kind of you know, control. It was just control for the sake of control. And so that's why I was not allowed, I was not allowed to do a lot of things. When you made Impulse, were you allowed to make that the way you wanted it? Pretty much. He had zero to do with it, which I was grateful for. And Al Ruddy was great. He he was very supportive and whatever I wanted to do. And, you know, uh, I was only limited by flaws in the script, which were, you know, uh, we're just there, you know, and, and we did the best we could to, I did the best I could to do some rewrites on it. And, but it was, there were some flaws in the script, but I felt that we, 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 you know, did a good job sort of overcoming most of it. Uh, and then of course you're always limited to some degree by the budget. So between those, those were my only real limitations, the budget and things about the script that just, you know, could not ever become perfect. So I kind of, um, uh, I, I can't, I can't have any complaints about that. You kind of stuck with the thriller um, genre with death in small doses. You know, there's, there's such a, a stigma about TV movies versus theatrical mm-hmm. movies. Did you find any kind of uh, prejudice against you as you were moving into television? Well, to be you know perfectly frank, I really didn't have a choice. I was stuck in a in a contract at Warner Brothers, which came about as in settling the breakup between Clint and me. And Warner Brothers had. Um, I mean, it's no news. I mean, I ended up having to sue them for fraud because the the contract that they made with me, they never had any intention of putting me to work. They never had any intention of proving, approving any story that I could ever bring to them or any script of any kind that I could ever bring to them or to give me any script that they already owned. I mean, it, it, it came out uh, in the course of the litigation that Clint was secretly, they were laundering Clint's money, essentially. I, I supposedly had a deal with Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers cut me checks according to my contract, but they were getting the money back from Clint. So hmm. I was not even employed by Warner Brothers, and he really didn't want me to do anything while I was in that contract. It was it was a, you know, I'll get you back for how you dare you ever sue me. I mean, that's my opinion. That's what happened. And I won, you know, in the case against him. So uh, I was I was kind of stuck. I had spent three years as a new director on the scene. And if you don't if you don't keep working you know, there's, there's a big question mark. And it, it was, it was a, whether it was a direct or indirect blackballing, it, it had the same effect. 
whether it was passive or aggressive, it had the same effect. And so I really had to jump to television just to work. I thought it was, uh, you know, the script was okay, and um, uh, Greenwald was the producer, and he'd done a lot of, produced a lot of television movies. And television at that time was not, as you say, what television is today. I mean, some of the best work is being done on cable television, I think. I mean, I, I find it, you know, I'm more interested in that work than I am most of the films that are being released out of Hollywood. But in those days, it was a big come down. And, and the material wasn't very good most of the time in those movies of the week. And that's what this was. But I tried to approach it in a um, more cinematically than typical. And so I took it as a challenge. It was shot in 18 days, which was, uh, which was, you know, I just returned. We shot it all in North Carolina and I it came back to LA and I was just like distraught because I thought, if that's what I'm going to have to do, I just don't know if I can do it. It just, you know, you're just kind of on a treadmill. I remember in the beginning when Richard Thomas uh, said, have you ever done a television film before? And I said, no. And he said, well, buckle your seatbelt. And he was so right. It, it was just, you know, run on a treadmill and you're lucky if you can get it, make it any, if you can make anything good. I was very gratified, though, because he actually called me up after he saw the film and he said that he was so proud uh, of, to be in it because it seemed more like a film than it did television. And, you know, he was he was mostly television in those days. I don't know if he's done much, many films since then. So I, I was I mean, I took that as a very as a great compliment. And even then, it wasn't. It didn't get aired for like a really long time, and uh, which I had to ask myself who was might have been behind that, because in television they just crank it out. They make it. It's on the air immediately. They don't do any. They don't hold anything back like that. They don't even care the quality of it. They just want something on the air. So, but you know, it happened. It happened to me, and. Um, you know, I have my my opinions about what went on, but um, but you know, you just have to kind of let it go over your head. You just have to you just have to sort of you know keep moving forward. So, what have you been up to lately? Slowly but surely, I just sort of got fed up with meetings that never went anywhere, and the and once again, you know, I've already expressed my feelings about the politics of Hollywood, and I just got tired of it and I just decided that I would just live life and so I've just I've been doing that I've been kind of and now of of course I've out of the blue comes a, I've had several projects sent to me uh to direct over over those years and but they were all projects that had no funding behind them and I that is the last thing I know how to do and when you get into the independent world, that's pretty much what you have to, you have to know how to get, you have to be involved with getting the financing. And it just was not my cup of tea in this, you know, I just, I mean, I would gladly do it if I knew how to do it, but I don't even know how to do it. It's just a whole different mindset and a whole different talent. And so I just uh, said, well, a couple of the things were interesting. And I said, well, if you can get the financing, I I can give you the creative work, but I, I can't get you the financing. And so, but now, just recently, this 
script has come along, which which made me laugh, and you know that always is something, and it's very different from anything I've done. <laughs> so a part of me is kind of like I've jumped into it. I'll put it that way, and we'll see what happens. I mean, I've always missed the work. I missed the work for you know once it just became like such an uphill battle for because of all of those uh, personal things. Um, it just wasn't worth it to me anymore because the work, I never stopped loving the work, but what I was having to go through, uh, it, it wasn't worth it. I just thought, you know what, I'm grateful that I don't have to do this. I don't have to work, so I'm not going to chase that, uh, cl- try to climb Mount, you know, I agree more. Uh, it just uh, it wasn't worth it. But I've never stopped loving the work and stopped, never stopped loving film. And so there's always a temptation there to, if something comes along. And so we'll see. It's called Fracking Nuts. <laughs> and it's, a, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a comedy with social commentary underneath it. It's about fracking and uh, how what fracking is doing. Uh, it's set in Texas, and we have all of the all of the familiar things of the fire, the water turning to fire, and you know all the things that we hear about fracking. And so it has this undercurrent. The, the there's an environmental spy in the fracking organization, and uh, what happens is that the the toxins in the water from all the fracking may turn all of the the citizens of this one small town into into um, cannibals and and zombies so it's like a, a a kind of a funny smart zombie film with with social undercurrents <laughs> <laughs> and it totally made me laugh. And on page seven, I was hooked. Uh, and so I work. I've been working with a screenwriter uh, for a couple of months now, and and we're just now, just now about to sort of take it out there and see if it's going to get any attention. We'll see. You know, if it works, it it's great. If it doesn't, I'm perfectly happy with my life. <laughs> And I think I've, you know, I've done enough that it's okay. And, you know, somebody else can now do things and I don't have to do things. But, but if it, if it happens, then it'll be, it'll be fun. You started off in Tennessee as a big movie fan. Are you still the movie fan that you were once or has being in the business kind of soured you on that? No, you know, I think I am still the movie fan, the same movie fan, but I am disappointed in what's happened um, to the Hollywood film situation. And and I know it's a matter of, um, it's just a changing of things because there's so many venues now and with so many, with cable and um uh, online movies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the interesting stuff is kind of gone out of the theatrical release and, uh, and, and gone elsewhere. And all of that stuff is still interesting to me. And I'm totally madly hooked on many of the cable shows that are on today. And I still love foreign films. And I agreed to be on the Foreign Film Committee this year at the Academy because I thought, well, that'll be a good way to see a lot of them because most of them never get released here. And so I still love it all. And, you know, I I have to say that I've become educated but not really jaded. And I still love movies, and I wish there could be more movies that have 
more character about them in the theaters because the theater is still the place I like to see a movie. And that is not happening for me very much these days. How did you get into show business? I don't really consider myself in show business. I didn't really have a desire to go into show business. I think like bad stand-up comedians and the Kardashians and rappers are in show business. I just wanted to be a filmmaker, and I can trace that back to seeing a screening of Citizen Kane when I was in high school. I actually saw it on television one afternoon, uh, and even with all the commercials, I got it, and it got to me. And that started me on the path that took me to going to junior college uh, in Southern California and then UCLA Film School and then into the mean streets of, uh, of Hollywood to, to make a whole bunch of nondescript and small and forgettable features to work my way up and get my chops, basically. When I got to my senior year, I began asking the professors if there was any kind of apprenticeship or internship program that when once we graduated and had our degree that would give us a stepping stone in the industry. The answer was no. Nowadays, most film schools do have that. But uh, the answer was no back in the day. And uh, so I just I left UCLA because I was already doing jobs at the fringes of filmmaking. And I got into the streets and I shot a whole bunch of small, forgettable films, feature films, out of the back of an Econoline van for 10 years. What were those like? They were films that were done for $25,000, $50,000. One of them was called White Justice. It was done in Arizona, uh, out in the desert. It was so hot, we'd have to get up at 4 a.m., shoot from sunrise till about 9.30 in the morning and go back to the hotel because uh, people were dropping over from the heat. But it was the blind leading the blind, the inept leading the inept. But I basically was teaching myself filmmaking. And by doing that process, I was hired for 10 years as a cinematographer and editor. Uh, and I got lots of hands-on experience, uh, both with cameras, uh, with lenses and in the editing room putting things together that was invaluable. Now, you worked a lot with Richard Robertson in those early days uh, as a cinematographer. What was he like to work with? Um, Richard Robinson. Sorry. Yeah. Richard was a, a crazy person. And what, do, you, do you come to his name by, by looking at Poor Pretty Eddie? Also with stuff like uh, Is There sef Sex After Marriage and um, Marriage and Other Four-Letter Words, those kind of films as well, yeah. Yeah, so I, I met Richard as, as part of a, uh, what should I say, a foray into adult entertainment to keep myself above water. Richard, as I say, he was a crazy person. Uh, he prided himself on wanting to be like Sam Peckinpah. Uh, in other words, from the doing with the with the alcohol and the drugs, but unfortunately not with the filmmaking prowess. 
he kind of relied on me to to bring that to the table. Uh, what I, I Richard, uh, listen, I was very great, grateful. We had a company called Richard had a company called Modern Art Productions, and I got my first full time job uh, with with that company, doing the cinematography and the editing on all of those small features: Montego, White Justice, uh, The Preacher, uh, uh, those other forays into adult entertainment. And those led us to being able, after a few years, to do uh, Poor Pretty Eddie. That was funded by some questionable sources uh, that we won't discuss. Other than those uh, sources that we won't discuss, how did Poor Pretty Eddie come about? Just like that, because we had made uh, 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 the feature uh, White Justice and the small feature The Preacher, two kind of forgettable westerns. But we'd done them, and they were both done. I think the preacher, I think the white justice was done under fifty thousand dollars, and the preacher was done for under a hundred thousand dollars. That enabled uh, Richard uh, to to do what he did best, which was hustle. He was a really, he was a real, he had a gift for gab, and he could take you to dinner and uh, and and uh, sell a refrigerator to an Eskimo, basically. And he he managed to get the funding for. Uh, Poor Pretty Eddie, which I believe was somewhere, I think it was even, I think it was like $350,000. I think it was in that neighborhood. All of those actors did the film uh, because they were given cash. Cash is always king because you don't have to declare it. But, uh, but all of those people, I can remember people showing up at the set with satchels full of cash for Shelley Winters and whomever. And that's the reason why everyone got involved on that production, because we got them at the right time. They didn't have anything else to do, and we were offering cash. And I think it was, it was a fantastic cast. I mean, that's, that's the best cast you're ever going to get in an under half a million dollar movie. Uh, or Pretty Eddie was directed by Richard. I was the cinematographer and editor, editor. Actually, if you look carefully, you can find the title, I believe, on that film, In Charge of Production. I was actually, uh, I had taken over that. That those reins at Modern Art, I would I would uh, um, uh, do the budgets, find the crew, uh, help out with the casting, do the get the equipment, test the equipment, uh, go on location, shoot the film, then take the film through post production, do the editing, uh, do the sound effects, do the music, get everything ready for the final mix, etc. And I would was basically doing the production end of what Richard was handling in the front office, raising the money and, and doing everything else. So sounds like you guys had quite a partnership. Yeah, no, it was, it was terrific because, uh, because it, it really, it gave me what I wanted, which was hands-on experience doing cinematography and editing. I had bumped into other directors, um, similar to Richard. I'd even done work for them. They kind of fit into a category that I called Gucci bag directors they were people who really had the gift of gab. They were hustlers. They were they were they were smart on their feet. They could raise fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars by selling insurance or whatever. Uh, and then they would buy a Gucci bag and splash some tanning oil on their face and tell everyone they were a director. Unfortunately, they didn't have the any experience with cameras or or film emotions or lenses or cinematography or the process of editing and what was needed in the scene to to make it work in the cutting room. So I always wanted to become a director. I had wanted that ever since I'd seen Citizen Kane, but I, I wanted to not be a Gucci bag director, and I didn't want to do it before I was ready. So I, I was very happy to have that very long apprenticeship as a cinematographer, editor, and, and uh, really in charge of the production end uh, at, at Modern Art Productions. 
putting those films together and getting the hands-on experience I needed before I, I took my, my step into directing. Did you know the screenwriter on this one? I met him on several occasions. I was in on some of the script meetings. Uh, Bill Sandifer, yeah, I don't, I don't recall any tidbits or any things about working with him. I believe he also came on location. Uh, but then, you know, that was back in the day when all of us had a huge bar bill. So some of that just kind of has to uh, be, be chalked up to a learning experience uh, and, 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 a, and, a cl- and an alcoholic haze of some kind. I don't recall uh, much about Bill. I, I just know that the script was, was, it was good enough to attract uh, those actors. But in the final analysis, when the film was completed and came out, uh, it, was, it was such a downer that I, I don't think we ever even, when I was involved with it, I don't think it even found distribution. I think it just kind of, uh, which is the reason why Michael Christian and I did the Heartbreak Motel version of it, uh, just to give it, because we had so much material, we, we you know probably were getting drunk at Nikki Blair's one night and said, gee, we could cut a, a PG film out of, out of this material if we wanted to, and we broached the subject and then, and then took the time to, to do that. Just to see if we could if we could do something that was a little more audience pleasing, but um, that ship had sailed basically by the time we got that done. But that one still managed to find its way out on uh, at least VHS. Yes, no, it's there, it's there, and um, it's it's got you know a little more character development for Bertha and for Michael's character, and it's a little it's a it's a much softer and not as mean and harsh a version of basically the same story without everybody dying in slow motion in the last reel. Now, were there any reshoots for that one, or was it all just original footage? I'm thinking. I think there was one reshoot in, that, we, that we did in the back of a car with the two women in the back of a car with Michael. That was all. We, everything else was pretty much original footage, that, which is outtakes that we were able to smooth over with Michael's voiceover and take in a more PG direction than the original hard R-rated version with with everybody dying in slow motion. What was it like working with Ted Cassidy? Oh, Ted was, a, all of those people were gems. Slim Pickens, Dub Taylor, Ted Cassidy, Shelley Winters, they were all, they were all super professional. They were sweethearts. I mean, Slim had worked with, uh, with Stanley Kubrick in Dr. Strangelove. Dub had been uh, in Bonnie and Clyde. Ted was from the Adams family, and from which Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He had the great he had the great scene with with uh, with Paul Newman uh, uh, having the knife fight, and Paul says, "Let's sit down the rules." There aren't any rules on a knife fight, and Paul kicks him in the balls. These were all great character actors, and um, and and our, we just happened to be at the right place at the right time to get them involved. And as I say, it was the the best cast I've ever seen in in a below half million dollar feature film. I was really impressed with Leslie Uggams just to have her be such a strong character. And then also a woman of color in this film. It it was just amazing the strength that she had. She was wonderful. I mean, you know, she had already, she'd been a star uh, as a singer and with big bands and on her own, in her own right, I believe even on Broadway. And she was wonderful. And she saw this as a great opportunity, you know, because this was past the era when we were having the civil rights movement and it was still an ongoing thing, and she was ready. You know, she was ready for her opportunity, and I thought she shone uh, perfectly. I mean, it started with her singing the national anthem at the at the Atlanta Falcons game, which we photographed. And um, she was, you know, she was very uh, extremely well respected and well known star. 
can you tell me how did you get involved with Death Game? Oh, Death Game, Death Game, Death Game. That's one of my favorite little little films that didn't go anywhere, but uh, but it took me somewhere. Death Game was already shooting, and the director had fired the DP, and uh, a produ- the producer on the film, uh, Larry Spiegel, called me and said, do I want to take over the film? And I, you know, I, I was reluctant to, to, to get involved in something that I thought was, uh, that sounded like it was already a disaster waiting to happen. But then I was told that it starred Sandra Locke who I knew had gotten an Academy Award nomination for Hardest and Lonely Hunter on her first film, and Seymour Cassell, who had been nominated for John Cassavetti's film Faces, and uh, the newcomer Colleen Camp. Uh, And uh, I said, sure, yeah, I would love to work with these actors. This sounds like a great deal. And so when I got involved, they'd already been shooting for about a week, so we only had, I only had 13 days to complete the film, which was being shot in Panavision, and anamorphic, which is widescreen lenses. And I had done a bunch of smaller films back in the day in 16 millimeter that we'd blown up to 35 millimeter. And I had used a camera called an Eclair, a 16 millimeter Eclair camera. And I, this was my first time using a Panavision Panaflex camera, which also was extremely ergonomically correct, had a, had a great ergonomically correct handheld version in its repertoire. So I I immediately said, I'm just going to treat this camera like a big eclair. And I basically handheld the entire film for 13 days. Uh, and because we were working, still working 16-hour days, I was just trying to save setup time of having to put it on a tripod, lower it, level it, take it off, put it on baby legs, lower it, level it. I was just trying to – we had so little time to finish that film. I was just trying to, to speed it up and move it along. And we were able to get it all all, all done in time. But uh, that was – a that was a great. Um, that was a. Uh, that ended up being a great learning experience for me. That film, and it ended up leading me to being able to do the two Clint Eastwood films, Bronco Billy, in any which way you can. Now, I heard that you actually provide Seymour Cassell's voice. Is that true? That is true. And the reason that is true, you remember the scene in that film where uh, the director Peter Trainer had the two girls throw food on Seymour for about an hour. It went on and on and on. And after actually when Seymour, when they finally untied Seymour and let him up, he, he went after the director. He wanted to punch him out. Seymour was no longer a cooperative uh, participant in the rest of that film after that, after that foray uh, into, into food throwing that he had been subjected to. So he would not come in and do the dupping. And so uh, I, I took on the responsibility. I was also... Listen, this goes. This is this is uh, this is kind of a long and convoluted story, and I will digress and go into it, just so you understand the process. I was only the cinematographer on that film, and uh, after we had completed it, uh, six weeks later they had a they, they had a, uh, uh, an assembly cut, and the director asked myself and Sandra Locke to come and have a look at it. And when I saw it, it was one of the most atrocious pieces of hammered shit I'd ever seen in my life. And uh, Sandra was com- very worried because it was her face up there. And during the screening, I kept calling out. During the screening, I said, where's that shot? Where's that shot? Where's that move? Where's that close-up? And um, after the screening, Sandra and I were taken directly to the editing room. And I could see the breakdown of the films. This was in 35 millimeters, so I could see the scenes and the film shots that were broken down in the, 
on the back of the editing table, and I began to look for what I needed, what I was recognizing was missing from various scenes. And I showed Sandra and the, the director right on the spot that I could make these scenes better and make the film better. And the editor was fired, and I was now uh, the not only the cinematographer, but the editor in charge of post-production on, on Death Game. And I promised Sandra that I would make us, I said, I'm never going to turn this film into a, an award winner, but I will make us look professional. And, and uh, you know, she was very pleased. That was how I inherited that. The editor was some hack that I don't even want to mention who had, hadn't even investigated what was available scene by scene. He had just taken the first close up and cut it to the first two shot. And that was his idea of doing a, a uh, an assembly cut. So I took over the editing and the post-production and uh, then I inherited, uh, when Seymour wouldn't come in, I inherited doing the ADR. Uh, I would do anything when it came to a film to make sure that it, it ended up being professional. I, would, I was always available to work in cinematography and editing and whatever it was, what was needed to get the job done. That was just, uh, I was trying to do my best to... This is back in the day of when... Uh, there was, of course, the, all of the ADR was done with loops. There was no, there was no automated dialogue replacement. I had to look at loops of every line. I had to make the loops. I had to look at loops. I had to do each loop time after time after time until I got it close. Then I had to take all of that into the editing room and sync it up line by line, word by word, taking out sprockets, 35 millimeter sprockets, adding half frames, adding quarter frames to make it work. It was literally the Chinese water torture of post-production. Just the amount of times that they say each other's names and things, it, that script must have kind of driven you crazy a little bit. It was, it, yeah, it did drive me crazy. It, yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was not the best film I ever worked on, but uh, it was work, and was work was uh, uh, hard to come by uh, often uh, back in the day. That's why I was doing these small films. This was a hundred and fifty thousand dollar film, by the way, a one hundred and fifty thousand dollar film. But it, uh, I, I not only got to shoot it, I got to do the post production on it. But I've never seen it completed. The version that was released was something that was put together off of a work print. Uh, and I've, it's not widescreen, it's not anamorphic, it doesn't have any of the color timing, any of the work that I put in in post-production. People have contacted me about it and are, are threatening to, fi to finish it, which I would love to become involved in, and I would at the drop of a hat, because I would love to see it someday uh, in, its, in its actually finished the way it was designed, but I don't know if it's going to happen. There's such a dream-like quality, well, dream and nightmare quality to that film, especially towards the end. It just so kind of goes off the rails once we get into like the trial scene, and just that that dreamlike nature is just wonderful to watch. Well, you know, they just remade that film. Yeah, it's it, it's. I thought it was a, it was a great concept because uh, it was a thriller. Uh, it was a kind of a not really horror the way we did it, but kind of a horror thriller with two innocent girls who come to the, you know, the door, come, come to ring your doorbell on a rainy night and are soaked, need to borrow the phone and come in and never leave and uh, uh, seduce you and put you through hell and then, you know, and then laugh and go down the street. So I thought it was it was the uh, the concept of the film was actually very cool because it was all doable uh, on a small budget and the performances were were terrific you know. So I know you went on to work with uh, Larry Spiegel again at least on uh, Remo Williams. I'm not sure if you worked on other stuff with him. 
but then also you said you worked with uh, Clint Eastwood and Sandra on some projects as well as a DP. But when did you finally make that foray into directing, and how was that experience for you? Well, let me let me digress again. And by the way, uh, for anyone who's interested, uh, I go over my entire career from. Uh, from concept to, to composite print, more or less, uh, in a book that's available on Amazon called Zen and the Art of Independent Filmmaking. Uh, David Worth, Zen and the Art of Independent Filmmaking, if anyone's interested, uh, because in the brief time we're going to talk today, we won't get into all of it. But I do discuss every project, including all the ones I did in Hong, did in Hong Kong, Bangkok, Macau, Indonesia, Israel, South America, South Africa, Bulgaria, Romania, etc., 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 um, but uh, the reason I got to Clint Eastwood and how I got to Clint Eastwood is what led to my being able to step out as a director. And how I got to Clint Eastwood was by a simple decision that I made while shooting Death Game. I said to myself, this is kind of a horror movie, so I'm going to light it. I'm going to light it to a 2.2 and I'm going to close down the shutter on all, every shot and I'm going to underexpose it about half a stop or a little more to a 2.8. Simple decision. DPs do this all the time. What I didn't realize is that Sandra Locke is, is very fair-skinned, almost translucent. She's just gorgeous. But every time she had been in a film, people hadn't taken care of that. And even though she'd been nominated for an Academy Award on Heart as a Lonely Hunter, uh, she didn't feel that she had looked right because so much of whenever she steps onto a normally lit set with the other actors, she's basically over, overexposed. So by my under underexposing that film uh, a little over half of a stop, I brought out her skin tone and she was eternally grateful. Also, because I stepped in and done the editing on that film and there had been a screening of it in Westwood, and she and Clint had gone to it. Here was the thing. Sandra left that film, left Death Game, and got a job on a feature called um, Outlaw Josie Wales and began a 15, nearly 15-year relationship with Clint Eastwood. So Clint saw Death Game in its finished form at a screening in Westwood in widescreen on the big screen. So he saw my work there. Then a, few, a year or so down the road, he and Sandra did the feature The Gauntlet. And I, I always kept in touch with Sandra, and I called her, and I told her what a great job she did, 50-50, just she and Clint, basically, on that, in that whole film. And she was up there with the big guy and holding her own. And she said, well, he had a huge fight with his DP on that film because he wouldn't shoot by firelight. And in the meantime, I said, well, what a coincidence. I had just done an off-road motorcycle film that I shot only by firelight and lantern light. So she said, you wouldn't have a reel of that you could drop off at Malpaso, would you? I put together that reel. Clint saw it. He showed it to Don Siegel. They tried to get me on, on uh, uh, Escape from Alcatraz. That didn't happen because of the union. Sandra said, hang in there for a few more years. We'll keep, we'll keep on this. We'll make it happen. Uh, I went off and did another small feature, shot in 16, blown up to 35. That was my first film as a director. It was called uh, originally called Hollywood Night. It ended up being called Hard Knocks. That was the, the, the how it was retitled. We did that feature for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The little feature that I'd done that was an off-road motorcycle film was a hundred and fifty thousand dollar feature. So when we blew it up and finished that film again, it didn't go anywhere. We didn't get a sale on the film originally. 
Michael Christian, my, uh, the co-star, the star of the film, who was the producer and star and writer. I was the cinematographer, director, and editor. So basically, between the two of us, we covered six major positions in, in, in that film, and we were able to do it for $150,000. Michael eventually re-edited and sold it as, uh, as uh, Hard Knocks. So uh, out of desperation, I called Sandra and I said, can I drop off this little film that I made for $150,000 for you and Clint to look at? She said, sure. So Clint had seen uh, the 35 millimeter finished projected print of Death Game. He'd seen a reel from, uh, from uh, the off-road motorcycle feature I'd done to see my, my action and my, my lighting by, candle, by firelight. Uh, and now he also saw the little feature that I directed uh, with Michael Christian called uh, Hollywood Night. A week later, I did a call from Clint, and Clint and Sandra were both on the phone, and they're very complimentary about the feature. And he says, I'm going to send you uh, a script. And that's how I got Death. That's how I got Bronco Billy. Uh, and that, by doing Bronco Billy in any which way you can, and having been the director of photography on two Clint Eastwood films, when I came out of the other end on that situation, I was able to then take that and move into directing. Sorry for the long-winded answer. No, that's great. That's great. And I love how it all seems to connect for you, especially, you know, keeping touch with Sandra, working with Michael Christian. You know, it just, it all seems to really add up. Yes, Michael had actually been one of the co-stars of one of the little $50,000 Westerns called The Preacher that we'd done, that I'd done with Modern Art Productions. And Michael and I hit it off and we'd go to Nikki Blair's and get drunk and we'd always talk about how we would do, uh, you know, what we could do if we got a chance to do a film. And eventually that led to us developing a script and getting a budget together and doing a schedule together. And while I was off doing the second unit on the Grizzly Adams NBC TV series, Michael had meeting after meeting and, and was able to raise the money for, for us to do Hollywood Night. You've done so many different things in your career, the editing, the producing, the writing, the directing, of course. What's been your favorite thing to do? Well, uh, directing is my favorite. Directing is everything I studied and everything I did as a cinematographer and editor and writer and production supervisor was to be better prepared to direct. Now, I know that uh, Orson Welles was a very big influence on you, so much that you actually wrote a book about the Citizen Kane crash course in cinematography. Can you tell me about how you got into writing and some of the books that you've written over the years? Yes. Well, um, uh, you know, eventually, uh, 10 years ago this January, I had just gotten back from doing a very awful film in Romania. It was the uh, it was it was just atrocious, and I had been in an awful facility in the winter in Romania. It was cold. It was it was just it was just horrendous. And um, I got a call from a friend of mine uh, in December, who had uh, a director I had worked with named Gil Bettman, who had who had left directing years ago, and who was a tenured professor at Chapman University. And he called me and asked me, would I take over? Uh, John Badham, the great director uh, of uh, Blue Thunder and Staying Alive and uh, uh, the, American, the American remake of Nikita, the great, great director, uh, was at Chapman. And he was going off uh, on sabbatical for a semester to, I believe, direct the TV series The Shield. And would I take over? And my family talked me into it. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't that excited about it. But I knew in the back of my brain that I would, that's where I was going to end up. 
and I was I was I had reached uh, the end of my my enjoying going on location. Romania had 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 fouled that up for me, uh, so I was open to doing it, and I did it, and I never left. I went to Chapman, and I stayed there for twenty months, teaching every teaching cinematography and directing every semester, teaching summer school, and eventually Chapman said, uh, "Well, we're opening up a." Um, a new branch in Singapore, and I raised my hand right away and said, well, I've married to a Singaporean, you know, for over 20 years, and I've done five features in, in Hong Kong. I think I know the dance out there, and I volunteered, and I went out there, and I got that program up and running after a year, for a year, and then I came back and was at UCLA and blah, blah, blah. Yes, how I got into writing. Gil Bettman said, if you're going to stay as a professor, you need to be published, and he introduced me to his, who, his publisher, Michael Weesey Productions. And I wanted to do a book on directing. They said, no, 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 no. You're a cinematographer who's worked with Clint Eastwood. That we can sell to a book on cinematography. So I said, all right, uh, send me the top five books on cinematography and tell me what they are. And I looked them all up and I looked at them and every one of them put me to sleep uh, because it was a, it was the reverse square law, the inverse square law and the, the, the chemical version of this and the, the, the circle of confusion of that it was some cinematography can be you can approach it like uh, you know like chemistry or like physics and I didn't want to do it scientifically I wanted to do it from the gut so um, uh, I, I did I, in doing my research I came across a phrase uh, I came across Orson Welles dis- discussing his experience on Citizen Kane with Greg Toland and he said something like. Uh, The great cinematographer, Greg Toland, taught me everything about cinematography in half an hour. And I said that I just stopped in my tracks. I went, wow, you know, in today's, you know, instant gratification, YouTube, me, me, me generation. This this is perfect. Wouldn't they all love to learn cinematography in half an hour? And then as I thought about it, I said, well, you know, Mr. Wells is probably overly given to hyperbole. This probably wasn't half an hour. I said probably the briefest time it was was a weekend. And so then my fantasy imagination took over and I said, wait a minute. Orson Welles loved to drink and take drugs and gamble. So I'll bet it was a wild weekend. And I put together this scenario of Orson Welles and Greg Tolan uh, of, of Greg tagging along as Orson Welles does his drinking and debauchery and gambling and whoring and Greg Tolan tagging along trying to teach him about cinematography, editing and filmmaking over a very wide, very wild weekend in the 1940s before they made Citizen Kane and that's, that's the basis for the Citizen Kane crash course in cinematography the publishers loved it and I got my deal and that was that How was the book uh, received when it came out? It wasn't it, uh, it, it didn't do any sales. I don't know why. Uh, I've seen a lot worse, but it was, uh, you know, it, it languished uh, on, uh, it languished on, and I think it's still available on, uh, on Amazon.com. Uh, you know, it makes, it makes a few sales here and there. I talk about it. People who read it really enjoy it. I got, I got the best set. I don't know if you've seen the book or seen the quotes that I get in the book. I've got quotes from Larry Spiegel. I've got quotes from, uh, uh, from the great, uh, uh, from John Badham. I've got the quotes from the great director of The Sting and uh, uh, about how they enjoyed the book. It was a, it was a terrific book. Uh, David Ward said, you know, I don't know if it happened this way, but it should have. Just I thought it was, I, I, I had, I, I 
I provided what I could provide for that book. But, you know, it's like anything else. Nobody sets out to make a movie that doesn't make money or doesn't get an audience. Nobody sets out to write a book that doesn't, that doesn't sell. But shit happens. And, uh, and, and you can't control that. You know, that's, that's you, know, that you at a certain point, you, you, you give it over to the, to the, uh, to the public and, and it's up to them to either pay attention or not. You wrote another one called Milestones in Cinema, 50 Visionary Films and Filmmakers. How did you narrow down your list to just those 50? This is something that had been – this, this book has a very interesting genesis also. Um, I have, I have – these, these films are all films that meant something to me. Uh, these are films that were touchstones for me when I was growing up, when I was studying uh, and I was, I'm, you know, I'm self-taught. I, I, I sought these films out. D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, Napoleon, Citizen Kane, Bicycle Thief, Hiroshima Monomore, Roshimon, Breathless, etc., etc., all of them. Uh, these are films that when I saw them, I said, wait a minute. These films are really outside the box. These were extraordinary films. These were films that were, were, the, that were, that, that were taking the medium in a new direction. They weren't the best film. They weren't the Academy Award-winning films. But they were films that were just striking. And so when I was teaching, when I began teaching, I would use these films as reference and, and cite them in class. And the reaction that I got from the students was a blank stare. And I thought, wait a minute. You guys don't know these films? And you want to be directors and cinematographers and filmmakers? That's like if you're going into the fine arts and they're discussing Gauguin and Van Gogh and uh, Picasso and you don't know who they are, you don't know their work. So out of frustration, this idea germinated in my mind for a few years and I then put it together and I, I wrote the book and, uh, and it's, 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 it's also online at www.amazon.com along with Zen uh, and the Art of Independent Filmmaking. You can get Milestones in Cinema, 50 Visionary Films and Filmmakers. And uh, I'm happy if you mail it to me. I'm happy to autograph it for you. When it comes to the book Adults Only, uh, a novel in the style of a screenplay, now is there some personal recollections kind of baked into that because of your history with some of those early sexploitation films? Yeah, that's, 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 my, that's my confessional of, of what the 70s was like. Yeah, this is my this is my version of, of Boogie Nights. And I, I started I didn't even know there was Boogie Nights when I started it. I started it also only back in the seventies when I was I was just I was I was trying to angst out all of all of uh, my feelings about the industry and uh uh and this is yeah, it's, it's based on a lot of personal experiences. That's that was my first script and first screenplay and it was and it was uh it was done out of um that was my what should I call it? Psychoanalysis. My time psychoanalyzing myself and getting that out of my system. Now, is there a good place for people to kind of keep up with you and your work? Ah, yes, www.davidworthfilm.com. You can go there also. And the books are, are also listed there, I believe. And uh, as well as the DVDs uh, are discussed and pictures from, uh, uh, pictures from a lot of the produ- production stills from uh, from from the locations uh, and the various features that I've done, et cetera. Thank you for, for reminding an old codger, an old codger about that. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. You've done so many great things over the years. And I just want to thank you for all of your hard work on all this stuff. I mean, so many movies that I, uh, enjoy on a regular basis things like Man with a Screaming Brain or uh, Never Too Young to Die. There's a huge cult around Never Too Young to Die. I'm sure you're aware of that. I'm not, but thank you. 
thank you for letting me know about it. I know that in its uh, that now after after um, let's see, 70, 89, after thirty five forty years, uh, uh, um, poor pretty Eddie has has a cult around it. In fact, I was called in to do a voiceover for a DVD, the new DVD release, and I did a I did a, a, a cinematographer editor's commentary on the track. So yeah, I realized that a lot of those films, I would just wish we could get Death Game finished. I wish they would continue. I, every year or so, I check in with them and say, come on, when you get a finished death game, oh, we're doing this, we're doing that. I would love to see that film finish. And I, I, yeah, Never Too Young to Die, that was, that was the film that I worked with Gil Bettman on. Gil was the director of that film. He had been a protege to Robert Zemeckis at Universal and done a lot of second units at Universal. Uh, and he's now a tenured professor at Chapman University. That's the Gil Bettman uh, thumbnail. I'm very surprised because I know for a while with Death Game that Bob Morawski, um, the the editor, um, had that. Yes. But then it seems like he doesn't have the rights to that anymore. And I'm not really sure what's going on with that one. I have no idea. I know people. People call me over the years. Uh, do you want? And I say, I'm here. I'm. I'll get involved. I'll do it on the weekends. I, I said I. I put so much into that film in the cinematography, the editing, the post production, the color timing, everything. Let's finish that puppy. And I can't seem to make it happen. It was one of the. See, uh, the, I have a very soft spot in my heart for for uh, Death Game. Uh, and for the the little motorcycle f- feature, I did a great ride. And for the original version of the 16 millimeter thir- to 35 millimeter film that Michael Christian and I did, that was originally called Hollywood Night, became Hard Knocks because those three films are the features that are are the material Clint Eastwood saw, and they were 150 thousand dollar films. All of their budgets combined didn't reach half a million dollars, and those three films opened the door for Clint Eastwood saying. This kid knows what he's doing. Okay, let's bring him on as DP. So, so I have a very fond spot in my heart for small films, for $150,000 and lower films, which is why I, I, I want to even go back and do a film on my iPhone 6 now, because it can be done. Uh, this recent, uh, recent, the last Sundance film, Tangerine, is a perfect example of guys getting together and doing a very small film for nothing with natural locations, with available lights, with transgender non-actors, with inexpensive equipment, iPhone fives and an organic episodic story. All of the template that was originated by the Italian neorealist filmmakers back in 1945 that has carried over and that is still being used today by independent filmmakers uh, in the streets. Well, hey, Mr. Orr, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. My pleasure. Anytime, Mike. I really appreciate you getting in touch. And anything else you need, uh, kindly let me know. I'd be more than happy to fill in the blanks. We're back and we're talking about Death Game and Knock Knock. We've got all these interviews for this show and we're missing 
two that I was really trying to get. One of them is Colleen Camp. And um, I've actually got three movies that I want to talk to her about. You know, we're doing Smile next year, which I've got Bruce Stern, Barbara Feldon, Annette O'Toole, Denise Nickerson. Um, who else for that one? Oh, Nicholas Pryor. Jesus. All of these people. Yeah, freaking Bruce Stern. Yeah, no problem. I'd love to talk about Smile. Oh, my God. I was blown away. So trying to get her for that, for Apocalypse Now, and for this, which yeah, and for Knock Knock and Death Game, since she was involved with both. And nailing her down has been nearly impossible. The other guy that I really want to get or wanted to get was Peter Trainer. Right, sure. And I talked to him on the phone, but he refused to go on the record. That's what you mentioned, yeah. He's not on the record, but I can say what he talked about. And it was one of the strangest conversations that I've ever had because, first off, I asked him about, you know, the based on the true story thing. He won't tell. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, come on. It's 1977. You could tell. Yeah. I think it's bullshit. I don't think there was a true story, and especially because it's based on so many other works that we've talked about. So, and I thought maybe there would be some weird legal thing, and I'm almost curious if the reason why Knock Knock isn't credited to, isn't called out more as being a uh, remake of Death Game, is because Death Game is so much a remake of Little Miss Innocence. I don't know if that's true or not, but if I were in a court of law and they showed me both films, I would say, yes, this one is definitely very influenced, very influenced by the other one. Those two films being Death Game and Little Miss Innocence. So I'm asking about the true story. I asked him about the dubbing and he said, you could tell that they were dubbed. Well, no, that was definitely Sandra's voice because I know her voice so well. But George, George, I was like, tell me about George because... Yeah, and then the third one was the whole idea of them saying each other's names a lot. And he was like, oh, wow, I never noticed that. that Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a bizarre interview. He wouldn't go on the record for anything. And, yeah, there's something there. Like you said, man, there's something lurking underneath this that nobody's talking about. I don't know what the hell it is. We've already talked about some other films uh, that perhaps inspired Death Game. And another one came out three years after Peter Trainer's film, which was called Vicious and Nude. Nick, did you have a chance to see Vicious and Nude, a.k.a. Viciosas al Desnudo? I am terribly sorry, Mike. With the stuff that went on this past week, that was the one that slipped slipped through my fingers. I wasn't able to do much research on that. I'm, but I leave it in your good and capable hands to in- inform not only the listeners, but me about it. It was a little difficult to watch because I, I can speak a, a, a un poquito de español, but this was completely without English subtitles on here. You don't really need them, though, because it's the same damn story that we've talked about already. Three movies already. <laughs> so here's another version. Spanish softcore version of this. No hardcore action in this. You will never hear a better disco version of Danny Boy <laughs> than what plays through this film for some reason. Okay. There's not a lot of makeup being employed. There's uh, there's a lot of... It's the same George threat as far as I'll tell your wife or we'll tell your wife uh, you know, unless you go along with us. And there's this... I think it's a fantasy sequence that goes on for a long time where the girl has... One of the girls, the more of the Jackson-type character, 
has this like long fantasy sequence of running away with the pool man and then kind of comes back to reality and then they eventually leave and there's not a lot of violence in this one at all though they leave and they're not punished oh, you know there's, there's no punishment at all until they they steal the George character's car and then they start careening down these crazy mountain roads while George's wife the Georgia quotes is on her way back and they start just driving like mad. They're, they're like, uh, you know, the, the couple in orgy of the dead mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film. And next thing you know, they are just going right off a fucking cliff. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, a little bit of, um, wages of fear going on there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah God is punishing these two girls. And yeah, I, I think it's Juan or the George character's wife who actually sees them crash. So by the time she, you know, is done with that and she'll never be the wiser that these two girls were at her house. So he gets away with it. Okay. That one, I'll, I will add it to the, the, the YouTube queue. I can find it. You think on there, there's a link I will post out on our Facebook group or, or I'll, post it to this where you can see it when it's not in flash but you can see okay, it out there cool. somehow i'll be interesting to see it and you can see the next film that we're going to talk about uh over on xhamster.com which i never knew about that site until recently which apparently seems to be the source for online pornography yes that uh i was uh, purely for educational purposes taking a look at it myself and uh um yeah it was a rather extensive database of uh Pornography. Again, purely for educational purposes, took a look at Miss Innocence in uh, 1987. Yeah, it was a, a you know, it was, um, well, why don't you talk about it, Mike? <laughs> it was tough to make it all the way through this because there were just so many sex scenes. Like, all of the the pathos that's going on between the two girls and the guy is just completely thrown out the window while they're yeah, fucking sex games. Yeah. <laughs> and they fuck a lot in this. Like I'm like to the point where I'm fast forwarding. It's just like, okay, now this is happening. Oh, there's a little fellatio. Okay. All right. No. Okay. There. Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. Oh, some dialogue. And then I would listen for five seconds and then they would start fucking again. It felt like, so it was definitely, it's a 1987 film. So we're squarely into the post theatrical, much more the video VHS type days. So the production values aren't necessarily there. The sex was good. Uh, Eric Edwards was the guy who was playing the George type character in this. Mm -hmm. And, did a good job. Uh, his name was Rick, I think. And then Sherry St. Clair, one that was, I think she was more of the Jackson character yeah. and Summer Rose was, uh, uh, which I think might be a pseudonym. She was more of the Donna character. Yeah. I mean, it was very, very similar. Like they even had the, uh, little Miss Innocence theme at the mm-hmm. end. Yes. I caught that produced by the same guy who, directed the first one mr warfield just a straight up hardcore version of it yeah like you said it's just uh in those days you know the uh whatever narrative was there was just you know loosely threaded to get from one sex scene to the other and and that's what we have here but clearly yeah with this same theme going on again and you know and if we reduce that theme to it's not just two girls or two women that show up and and sort of like provide the temptation for a male who shouldn't be uh, necessarily 
doing what he's contemplating doing. It just, it just, it comes down to sort of the Adam and Eve thing that sort of almost, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's sort of the, it's biblical, you know, I mean, this is a very old theme uh, that is, you know, part of, you know, oral storytelling, the oral tradition of story, no pun intended, the, you know, uh, tradition just of, of, um, not being a slave to one's desires. And that seems to be the, the real at its core. If we like, if these films are all some sort of algebraic equation and we just wanted to reduce it down to the most common denominator, it seems like temptation and sin are the, that's all, that's basically what's going on here. So, but it's, it's just interestingly handled. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the end of both of these films and the end of Miss Innocence, um, or sorry, in the end of Little Miss Innocence, mm-hmm. the 72 film, the man is exhausted and amazed that he's still alive and just, you know, really like he's, he, you know, he goes through that same kind of trial that we've seen in uh, or we will see in Death Game, albeit not as, as violent or uh, nearly as much. And then with Miss Innocence, the 87 film, I like the end of that where you know the the two girls leave and Eric Edwards is you know d- completely devastated but then he kind of turns and he's just like I want more. Mm-hmm. It's like oh okay so it was a nice like little twist there Absolutely. and then they walk off and little miss innocence plays which I was trying to find on a 45 but I just could not find it. Why don't you go take your bath and I'll see what I can do about getting Carol into bed. Yeah, I'll bet you will. 2015 is when I first heard of Knock Knock earlier this year. I don't think I told you this. I I had posted about this online a while back. This movie was just starting to play. It had played Belgium, I want to say. And it had played a few other festivals. And then um, I'm starting to see the trailers for this. And I'm just like, oh. My God, this is such a remake <laughs> of Death Game. Mm-hmm. This is crazy. Here's Keanu Reeves at home, gets a knock on the door. These two wet women outside, they want to use his phone, and then they start torturing him. Oh my God, this is Death Game. So I go out and I look on the on IMDb, and director Eli Roth, writers Guillermo Amodeo and Nicholas Lopez. And I can't remember, there was a third person credited with this. I think it might have been Roth himself. And right. next thing I know, um, there's there's no Anthony Overman or Michael Ronald Ross, who were the credited writers of Death Game, though they are admittedly pseudonyms for names that nobody can remember, not even Peter Trainer. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> And there's no mention of Death Game on this at all. Uh, and I was just like, what the fuck is going on with insane. this? It was crazy. What did you uncover? What really drove me over to this site was um, I got this, and I wish I could remember the name of the person because they are no longer on Facebook. I tried to look them up the other day and it gave me like that, you know, um, when you look through your old messages, I could find the message, but it just said Facebook user, so I couldn't find who the message was from. So I got this this uh, note from them, and it said, can you please do me a big favor and log on to IMDb and vote 10 stars for one of our generation's better, 
better directors, Eli Roth's new movie, Knock Knock, starring the great Keanu Reeves and the ever-so-talented, and I can't remember what uh, what his wife's name, Lorena Izzo. Right. Uh, once you voted, please take a screenshot of it and email it back to me, and I will go ahead and send you $5 via PayPal. If you have any friends with active IMDb accounts, and if they could do the same, then let me know. Thank you. What the hell is that all about? I have no idea. So I, I actually did it. I, I rated it 10 stars. I took the screenshot. I immediately took my rating off. Mm-hmm. I sent the screenshot to this person. I never got my $5. <laughs> and then when they started questioning. They're like, oh, well, can you, I, I want to say, can you write a review and we'll send you $10? And I'm just like, no, you send me five dollars first, <laughs> and then I'll write the review. Here's my two dollars. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just like, how can they get away with this? And I was just like, who is behind this? What is? I mean, yeah, there's like payola laws about all. That. I mean, like, it's like, well, I just want to know what was going on with this because it just seems it's so fucking shady. And can it be Roth's people? Can it be the the PR people? I mean, who's who is eventually getting the benefit when this happens you know yeah i mean it's ratings i don't understand uh, i mean it's not a really currency it, it, it's it's it, in the terms of clicks or ad revenue it's just a rating uh you know and that's not like everybody decides whether they want to see a film based on its imdb rating they typically will go to an aggregator like rotten tomatoes first you know because imdb right. typically has a very low ball rating system uh, a film that you know, many historians may consider to be a very significant film might be a five on IMDb or something, you know? Well, when I voted for this thing, it was all the way up to like an eight point something <laughs> there anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, how can that be? 8.4 rating uh, like from 308 yeah. users. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, they were like, okay, can you write a review? And I'm like, yeah, send me a screener and I'll write a review. Cause I can't write a review for a movie. I haven't seen. Oh no, no, no. We don't know anything about screeners we don't and i'm just like hmm strange just strange so that was my entree into this film so my my radar was way up when it came to this well, Mike, thing. when i saw that that uh screen grab that you know that you sent me i was just kind of my jaw dropped i'd never seen anything like that except in the old payola plugola radio days you know well and the other thing that kind of got my hackles up a little bit is when they were interviewing roth when the the movie was out eventually and it was kind of interesting because Green Inferno, which had been delayed for, what, two years or something, finally comes out in September, and then I'm reading that Death Game is coming out in October of 2015, and I'm just like, wait a second, how can he have two movies out within like just a couple weeks? But then I finally found out that they released it via On Demand. I wonder now, after Green Inferno just got crashed by the critics but then i don't know what it made in box office i wonder if it would have been smart had they swapped that around or something but yeah but there was no advertising for knock knock whatsoever yeah some of the marketing and and business decisions i'm not entirely sure what what's you know i only found out about through you because we're such you know uh, kindred spirits with death game and of course you know i see sandra Locke as a as an ep on the film so i know it's not like i couldn't quite figure out when you were telling me and listeners, this story a little while ago was it? Were they just trying to downplay the that it was a remake? Because do you, do you have any insight into that, or, or or not really? 
Well, that's the weird thing. And we almost got a chance to talk to Eli Roth for this episode. And unfortunately, I was right past that window of press coverage. He's already on to something else. But I actually did talk to his assistant and she was very nice. And, you know, I gave a bunch of times and it was just like, sorry, you know, we're on to other things now, that kind of thing. So it's like, okay. And I know he's got Hemlock Grove coming out. He's probably got however many other pokers in the fire, that kind of stuff. But I did find it a little suspicious that when he was interviewed, he barely ever mentioned Peter Trainer. He barely ever mentioned Death Game. He would go right to Polanski, of all things, which is kind of ironic since there's underage girls involved here. But he would go right to Polanski and talk about how he wanted to make this Roman Polanski-type thriller. And I'm just like, but wait a second. You know, you're making a remake of something. So I don't know if he's taking cues from his pal Tarantino when it comes to this kind of obfuscation of your sources kind of thing. But it just, it, I don't know. My spider sense was just it's all tingly about too. I mean, this. Colleen's got a cameo in the film and and uh, Sandra's an EP on it. So it's not like it's it's hidden. I think maybe it's just possible that the, the, the makers, you know, partic- in particular uh, Roth, they're just, I would assume that they just think that it's a sub- particular subset of cinephiles that know this film. So they're not going to. And maybe since the rights to that film may not be part of whatever conglomerate it is that put it out. There's no there's no synergy in re-releasing it to capitalize on it either. So so let's talk about knock knock. Chocolate with sprinkles. Everybody packed. Bye, guys. Bye. Who's there? Yes? We're so sorry to bother you, sir. My phone got wet and she left hers at her house. Well, if you guys want, you can come in and use my phone. Guys, I have your clothes. They're pretty much dry. Surprise! I can't do this. I'm married. You've been a very bad boy, Evan. Look what I found. That's my daughter's. You take that off. You like how it fits me? Daddy? What do you want? I want to play hide and seek. 30 seconds. You leave the house, I shoot. Help me! This is what happens when you break the rules of the game, Evan. Knock, knock. Evan, how many family men have survived this game? None. We start off very similar. Uh, Well, actually, we start off with Keanu in bed after we go through his house and we see all of these photos on the wall. And it's interesting. There is a, a crazy photo of him like kind of making this like monster face and his family, like, 
you know, uh, separated from him, which will definitely play into it later on. And he has this game with his kids where he plays monster and he'll like go, ah, and they run away and they get all crazy and stuff. So we see this idyllic family scenario before the wife packs up and takes the kids off. And now we have, you know, Mr. Keanu Reeves's wild weekend kind of thing. And he's no longer a uh, record collector. He's actually a DJ, not necessarily a, a music producer like Miss Innocence or anything. But yeah, he's this DJ. And these two girls knock, knock on the door one night, and then they immediately have to get rid of the cell phone thing. Because technology really plays into this movie, and that is something that Roth has talked about, like the whole idea of where we're at with technology today, and he was really trying to play that up. And I have to say that this movie is so technologically advanced that I actually don't understand the ending of the film, and maybe you can help me out once we get there? Sure, I can try. Okay, good. I mean, yeah, it, there's a lot of um, acrobatic contortionism in the beginning to to make sure that watchers of the film aren't saying, well, that would never happen because of, you know, this and that. And, and it, all, it all relates to the cell phone, essentially. Like, how did they get the – how did they walk into the wrong address? Why can't they just use their cell phone? It's not like the old days where you knock on somebody's door, like in Death Game, and say, can we use your phone? Well, it's, you can find a phone anywhere, you know? It's not that hard. And um, you can just borrow one from somebody on the street. But they have set up that it's isolated sort of suburbia. They even reference the fact that he's one of the one percenters there. Yeah, it, so they, it, the film goes goes to great lengths to try and make the, the people who love to poke holes in, you know, the plausibility of the opening 10 minutes that they're satisfied that these girls actually do need to come in. Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's a sad narrative consideration that you have to, like, appease people who are going to go, like, wait a minute, why can't they do this? Wait a minute, why can't they do that? But appease they did, and convincingly. I think they make a good case why these girls needed to come in. So. Keanu is actually playing a guy named Evan Weber. Um, so it's Mr. Weber's Wild Weekend. The two girls that come in, it's Lorena Izzo uh, as Genesis, and Lorena Izzo is Eli Roth's wife. And then Ana de Armas, who plays Belle, she's much more of the Colleen Camp character, the Donna character. Absolutely stunning, gorgeous young lady with this blonde hair. Just, oh, man. And she's... um, yeah, like I said, she's much more the Donna character, much more sympathetic to George and or to Evan in this case. And uh, Genesis is much more of the ringleader, the mastermind behind this, the the one who really kind of pushes things. Though you know, just like Donna's not fully innocent, neither is Belle. The seduction scene that happens again happens fairly quickly. I gotta say, like I said before, that. That song is weak sauce, man. It just it doesn't do it for me. And just the seduction itself, I don't buy as much as I bought Seymour Cassell with his kind of porn star mustache in the seventies versus Keanu Reeves with his like really kind of sloppy John Wick hairdo in this one. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I I, I mean, if if on its own merit, I think what. Roth and 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 the three three writers whatever do do effectively is is really show uh, Keanu Reeves as I mean they they do their best to sort of show him as a uh, a basically decent guy um, uh, a loving father and um, you know uh, up at least until this point we have no reason to suspect that he's been an unfaithful husband uh, what I I think they do a nice job of having him 
you know, try to as best as he can uh, say no over and over and over and over uh, until they basically just, you know, um, pull down his pants and, 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 and initiate sex. And he, of course he still can say no. I mean, there's nothing, he's a man. He can, he can say, please get out of my house, pull his pants back up and have them leave. Uh, but I think what they do in, in, in this film at least is they try to set up the idea that it's, it's plausible that he, he had no intention. Uh, but I mean, I don't know if I buy it, you know, but I'm like, they, they go to the, they go to the lengths to set it up. Whereas in death game, it's like, hey, you girls shouldn't be in here naked. Let's have sex. It's very quick. Uh, I mean, the, yeah, and, it, and it's, it's just sort of more artfully done, particularly with that music. In here, it, they, they try and set up this idea because they're, like you said, the whole monster thing. They're, they come to deal with this sort of duality within the Keanu Reeves character or all human beings, for that matter, the sort of Jekyll and Hyde aspects. What are we hiding underneath? Because remember, they keep saying, oh, there's Evan. I see Evan now every time he gets angry. It's strange to me how much uh, Evan's wife is a character in this film, even though she's barely in it. And she's there represented by her art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the art becomes the central piece in there. There's so much of, well, they, you know, go around and and they even spray paint on the walls. I want to say like art is not real or something like that. And so all of those pictures that we've seen at the beginning, we revisit at the very end with, and they're all spray painted on. And she has the, the wife has the sculpture there, which eventually kind of becomes like the murder weapon. They deface it. Uh, Evan tries to clean it up and it just is it, and then uh, at one point, this uh, friend of the family comes over rather than the del- delivery boy. This guy comes over and they slaughter <laughs> this guy. Pretty funny, too. I mean, I like the way that's handled. <laughs> I think they do it a is, nice yeah. job. It's really easier to point out the, the differences than the similarities because they're just so similar. As I said at the t- beginning, Mike, it, it's sort of like in terms of like the skeleton. I mean, in terms of the made the, the story and the plot are identical down to like minutia, you know. Um, oh, yeah. and it's, and I always maintain, like I did in the beginning that, that it's, it's really a question of tone, the 2010s versus the 1970s. That seems to be the major, uh, divider. So like her makeup is not nearly as crazy as Jackson's makeup, though she does put on the makeup. And then the, the sex scene, I think is a little bit more graphic when George or Evan in this case is tied up and, and we've got the Donna character bell on top of him. And in this case, we've got uh, Genesis is taping the whole thing or using her phone to record everything that's going on, which will play a part in the end of it. I love when they have this kind of trial slash torture scene, which kind of reminded me a little bit of the big combo, the the Joseph Losey film, where he's got these headphones on and they're turning up the volume super loud to torture him. And when Reeves finally breaks down and starts screaming all of these things, like basically recapping the movie and how easily he was quote unquote trapped into this and him yelling about threesomes. That's the, the golden moment for me in this film. I loved it too. I, I, I just, there's two moments where Keanu melts down. There's that. And there's the one that towards the end of the film 
and of course it's this whole they're they're trying to provoke him into into becoming you know mr hyde again because they keep calling him the real evan when he's angry or violent many films walk that line between you know what what is human nature are humans fundamentally good or are we fundamentally evil and is it just laws that keep us from transgressing the moral boundaries, you know, from killing and from doing all sorts of things. And I think, you know, this film in some way kind of like plays with that. I don't know how expertly it, it, it goes into it, but it's, it's there nonetheless. And those, I, I have to agree with you. They're like gold. They're like point break moments. You know, they're wonderful sort of Keanu diatribes where I'm a huge, everybody who knows me knows that I absolutely adore Keanu Reeves. He's just one of my favorite guys in the whole world. And he has certain Keanu Reeves isms, isms. And, um, you know, usually it has to do with the delivery of dialogue, how it's written and his interpretation of it. And, and I really, really enjoyed, I was just, I had like a big shit eating grin on my face as he was going, it's free pizza. It's free pizza. You know, it's just like, you're going to kill me. You're going to fucking kill me. Why? Why? Because I fucked you? You fucked me! You fucked me! You came to my house! You came to me! I got you a car! I brought you your clothes! You took a fucking bubble bath! You wanted it! You wanted it! You came out to me! What was I supposed to do? You sucked my cock! You both fucking sucked my cock! It was free pizza! Free fucking pizza! It just shows up at my fucking door. What am I supposed to do? We're flight attendants. Come on, fuck us. No one will know. Come on, fuck us. Oh, two sums, three sums. It doesn't matter. Starfish, husbands. You don't give a fuck. You'll just fuck anything. You'll just fuck anything. Well, you lied to me. I'm trying to help you. I let you in. I was a good guy. I'm a good father. And you just fucking fuck me. What? They're gonna kill me? You're gonna kill me? Why? Why? You should fuck me? What the fuck? Fuck! Fuck! This is fucking insane! I was totally reminded of him in uh, Johnny Mnemonic when he wants the club sandwich. I want room service! I want the club sandwich! I want the cold Mexican beer! I want a $10,000 a night hooker! Those wonderful Keanu moments, they're priceless. And I mean that in the best possible way. I, I, there's no criticism. I'm a huge fan of his. And, and there are moments in here where I think dialogue you know, struggles to come out of him in a, in, a, in a really credible way. And I think the there's other parts where he's absolutely magnificent. You know, I love that scene and I love it towards the end where he a, a similar where he's completely broken and does it all over again, essentially. So we get the feeling in... Uh, or at least I get the feeling, and I, I have a feeling you do too. In Death Game, there's some kind of references to maybe Jackson and Donna have done this kind of thing before. Yeah, I want to say they reference like that old dyke or something. San so they've Francisco, done this too. Yeah. yeah, this one though for sure. These two girls, uh, this is their mo. Right. They seem to be almost like these. I don't know, suck you by walking around in whatever town they are and just finding men, making them this offer of doing a threesome with them, with their nubile young bodies. And 
the men always fail. Right. They have yet to find that one person. It, it kind of reminds me of like a almost a Twilight Zone where you know they're looking for the one person who will make that self sacrifice or something. I know, but yeah, and that's and that's the that's of course the 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 un it's a rigged game that they're that they're playing though. That's the thing that they don't really see the fact that they're playing a rigged game. It's like Nurse Ratchet, you know, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when Jack Nicholson says she like that nurse. She she likes a rigged game, you know, uh, and and they're they're rigging the game uh basically just like um you know co- coming on to men to this guy to the point where you know I mean, if you go around and, and tempt people all the time if i if i go up to a person and i say here's a check how many zeros do i have to add to you streak naked they're gonna be like i'll do it for ten thousand you know i mean it's you're just it's a rigged game basically right. I, they can't quite fathom that they're they're proceeding from a false standpoint because they're so severely damaged by men you know this becomes their their sort of like feedback loop yeah i never really got indecent proposal that whole sleeping with demi Moore for a million dollars it's like i wouldn't necessarily lose my mind to buy a hippo if somebody <laughs> slept with my wife if i had a million dollars right, yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, just saying. So, so we have the torture. We have the trial. We have all this stuff. We have, again, the whole idea of these are underage girls here. And uh, then uh, and we have the murder. We have all this kind of stuff. And then we eventually get to the end of the film where in Death Game – so in Death Game, it's, George, we're going to kill you in the morning. You know, it's like the Dread Pirate Roberts, you know, have a good night. I'll probably kill you in the morning. (laughs) And they almost kill him. Sun is up. That's it, George. Big laugh. And they leave. They traipse off, off into the sun. With that song. Oh, that song comes back on and they're just having the best time of their life. Just running through the neighborhood. Jackson's still got her big top hat on. They're just laughing like crazy. And then out of fucking nowhere, <laughs> in one of the craziest kind of just <laughs> smash cuts I've ever yes, seen, yes. here comes the ASPCA van <laughs> that just mows them down. <laughs> Freeze frame. The credits roll. Credits. Yep. It's just, yeah. <laughs> Um, it is, it is one of the most unique and bizarre endings of, of like, you know, of a seventies mainstream or, uh, marginal film, I think. And, uh, I can't say enough about it. I mean, the first time I saw it, my jaw dropped. I, that was oh, yeah. not what I was expecting. I mean, it's not what anybody was expecting. Uh, and it, it's just, you know, like I said, it's sort of like these two grand old themes wrapped up in sort of like a, you know, a Grimm's fairy tale or Aesop fable type thing within this sort of like bizarre twist, Rod Serling ending. And it's just, it's a lot to handle. You just kind of like, first of all, I don't know what I just watched. Cause that's a very interesting film. And secondly, seriously, this is the ending, you know, right. <laughs> it's just, it's not a film that's easy to forget. I literally, the first time I watched it, I was like, wait a second. I hit the rewind button and watched the last five minutes. Again. I mean, like, uh, yeah. And I did that too. Again, when I watched it on Sunday, I'm like, I got to watch the end of this again. I love it so much. And then that great song comes on that I, I forget who it is, but it's, you know, it's, it's a great track. And, uh, and I know where you're going into this because it, by way of comparison, knock, knock. Yeah. What about the ending of knock, knock? So knock, knock, they're digging a grave. Mm-hmm. And rather than, 
throwing Keanu into this grave. They bury him up to his neck, mm-hmm. and then they, rather than having the machete that Jackson has, they have this uh, big stone that they're going to bash him on the head with. But instead of doing that, they take one of their phones, or maybe it's his phone, or I don't know whose phone, right. and place it in front phones, of him. By the way, yeah, yeah. a lot of phones. Hey, goddamn phones. <laughs> They put this thing down in front of him, and it's the video of him fucking Belle, or her fucking him, I should say. And I have no idea what's going on with this thing. I don't recognize the interface or anything, so the only thing I could think of is, like, is this, like, Vine or something? Are they posting? They must be posting this out online, right? Absolutely. I mean, I thought, like I said, I didn't recognize the interface either. I thought the idea was that it was something like Facebook because there was a like button and a delete button. But I mean, you can find that. I don't know. I don't know what, if it was a hybrid or they just didn't get the copyright permission to do something. Uh, they didn't want to pay the money, but yes. But then I know where you're going with that because something, I mean, Keanu struggles and gets a hand free and you should take it up. You should take it from there, Mike. Well, I don't remember him getting the hand. Free. Okay. So he gets a hand free. He digs it up out of the earth, and he can't quite reach the phone, but he's reaching so that he can hit the delete button. But because he's in really bad shape, and because he just doesn't really have the mobility, he kind of just accidentally bumps it and knocks it over. And I mean, when he bumps it, I'm not sure if it's clear or not, but he might have accidentally even hit like. <laughs> I'm not sure. But it just felt, okay, and then I'll, I'll take it from here, Mike. And then his wife comes home. And then they see the place utterly trashed. These two girls have just destroyed the house. What they're not aware of either is that they've they've kind of committed their own act of art. It's sort of like graffiti vandalism, almost like guerrilla semiotics art themselves. And so when they're saying there is no art, they're kind of making an artistic statement too. Uh, so I just don't think they were quite aware of it. But they're, <laughs> but they're also engaging in their own form of sort of like decomposing relationships uh between the rich and the poor the disenfranchised or the psychotic or whatever and then the kid says daddy had a party or something like that and i just thought i'm gonna come down uh you know i've spoken with friends who did not care for the film and you and i both love death game and so you know we're gonna be harsh and i'm gonna be straight up and say I did not mind Knock Knock. I enjoyed aspects of it immensely but I did feel let down by that ending. I also had troubles with the ending just because as they're going through the house and kind of repeating that opening camera movement, the song on the soundtrack is Where's My Mind by the Pixies. Right, what a great song, yes. Which conjures up Fight Club and yeah. That's it exactly. It's been used in Fight Club and that song now is indelibly locked when it comes with Fight Club, yes. It's apocalyptic, you know, like bombs going off. You met me at a very strange time. time in my life. Yeah, exactly. You can't necessarily use that song and so I know Colleen is in the film. Colleen Camp makes an appearance, kind of a little cameo, like very brief in Knock Knock. But I was really hoping for just some more throwbacks to the original. Like, even if it was the instrumental version of Good Old Dad, like playing on a digital watch oh, cool. or something. Yes. Yeah, something like that. Or, But 
a croquet mallet somewhere in the hallway, something like that. But yeah, nothing. It really felt so divorced from Death Game so much of the time. And I just was like, oh, come on, just get, throw me a bone here, would you? Yeah, there were no bones to be thrown. Uh, it, like you said, it was almost intentionally divorced. They didn't seem to be... Maybe because the first film is, is perhaps so underground and doesn't have much of a constituency that there seems to be no reason to reflect back to it. But that's just what cinephiles like Tarantino, Rodriguez, Roth, they live for that shit. So and and people prior to them, like Joe Dante or John Landis, you know, were very skilled at doing that type of postmodern nudge or 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 wink to to um, films that were important to them growing up. Or, or that belonged to that genre or cycle. So we didn't get any of that playfulness here. Uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like I didn't like the film because, quite frankly, and, I, and again, I, there were friends of mine who just really didn't care for it. You know, I really enjoyed aspects of this film and would recommend it to friends. But I just, as a, as a remake, it was, um, you know, when the last time I was on the show, Mike, we talked about the remake of Who Can Kill a Child, Come Out and Play. And, and this is kind of like a parallel sort of like situation here where the original is, is a powerful impactive film for those who had seen it and the remake treaded the same ground but didn't really substantiate substantially differ from it or, or stamp you know like stamp it with its own identity and so kind of it was a little disappointing in that regard do you do you agree or no yeah i agree and i've i've not heard other than you i've not heard from anybody who really liked knock knock and to me, I'm just like, I can completely understand. I happen to like it, yeah. but I, I also really like right? the original. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that mostly comes from our looking at this through the lens of Death Game, right. whereas other people are going to come to it cold and see this film and be like, eh, doesn't do it for yes, me. Yes, you're right. That's exactly, I think, what's going to happen. I think that's right. I think you're right on the so so. Had they embraced the original, they probably would have uh, a more substantially happy fan base right now. You know, people. It's possible, anyhow. Right. They would have had at least like ten people. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> All ten of us at our Death Game uh, annual uh, convention would, would be screaming "knock knock" and inviting Keanu, you know, to come by, which would be great, you know. Uh, and but no, um, it. It it just sort of missed the bullseye for me because of its, uh, like you said, its divorce from the original, and and it's sort of like uh, it's like it took an eraser out and tried to like just cover up the pencil marks underneath, and that just you should embrace those those etch a sketch marks underneath, not try to erase them, embrace them because that original film is a is a you know a great movie it i mean not i mean it's not a great movie it's a great movie to me and it has great things about it well yeah between the the opening song the end of the film the the overuse of the names and just the the weirdness that goes along with it i mean just to see sandra Locke with those eyebrows and everything there are so many reasons to recommend death game and i can't really have those same reasons to recommend knock knock i can only say watch it after you've seen death game to see how it was treated in 2015 yeah that's a wonderful summation to 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 the makers of the film and the people involved with it i think you had a really you know an, an, an interesting opportunity here and 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 delivered in a lot of ways but i think what probably a sense of history is important in culture, and yeah, I don't think we should be covering it up. We should be embracing it. So I don't know whatever like economic factors 
or business factors might have led to not acknowledging Death Game as the, the you know as the original film here. But it, I think a, it was a great opportunity to do that and create awareness for it and uh, and capitalize on it because Knock Knock has a lot of really cool things going for it. I enjoyed the casting immensely. Uh, I you know Keanu Reeves is in a film. I see it. It's just that simple. You know. Uh, he's one of my favorite actors and just general all around like nice guys. I think he's just, you know, he's, he's, he's to me, he's, he's aces, you know, and I think I've, I've gone overboard in discussing how much I, affection I have for Sandra Locke. It was just a really good meeting of a lot of ideas and talents, but I have some reservations about the film too. I'm sure you've seen that video of Keanu on the subway. On the sub, yeah, 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 yeah. It was a really cool thing he did. I don't remember what. Did he give his chair to somebody? He just gave a seat to somebody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there was no reason. Like I know he knew. I know he didn't know he was on date. Right? Yeah, yeah. He's just he's got this reputation for being. Apparently, he you know he 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 gives him a lot of his money away and and uh, is always just sort of like he's kind of like the Clark Gable uh, in terms of like um, being very friendly with his his uh the the uh cast of a film but as especially kind to the crew you know and knows everybody by name and uh is very generous with his time and apparently is a still very much a luddite doesn't have a cell phone doesn't have a computer at home sandra bullock said that you know that he still doesn't and you, you got to kind of appreciate that too and he's just he's just a great guy i think he's he's awesome uh, that man of Tai Chi that he ended up directing wasn't the, I want to say the star of that film. Cause he's not the star. He's the bad guy in that, which is a rare turn. Right. But I want to say his, uh, the star tiger who Chen, wasn't he like his, like his trainer or like his, his, uh, martial arts, uh, guy who was on like the matrix that's and those great things. Question, so Mike, I don't know. I, I defer to you on that. Probably if that's what you're thinking, that's the case then. But I mean, yeah, that's one of those like, oh, hey, yeah, the, let's make this guy the star of the film and I'll direct it and I'll be, you know, the bad guy kind of, he's hidden by a mask a lot of the movie, which is great, you know, and, and yeah, it, between movies like Man of Tai Chi moves a little slow, but it, he, yeah, Keanu Reeves makes some amazing films. I mean, John Wick was probably one of the best films that I saw last year. I love John Wick, yeah. Anybody I can I convince to see it comes away and says I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of that. You know, one of one of my little favorite little things he did recently because there's a lot of stuff he did back in the day that I really enjoyed too. Little films like Tune In Tomorrow and things like that. But he did one. He reteamed with Sandra for this film called The Lake House, which I which was a remake of a of a Korean film. That's a film I put on frequently because I, I love. The Rachel Portman score, and I just love seeing those two and their chemistry together again. I I love that movie. I, I watch it all the time. It's it's I'm kind of uh, you know unabashed in my in my uh, my liking of Keanu. He's great. So so that was one of the major fact selling points for Knock Knock for me. Eli Roth, you know, I'm I'm sort of like uh, it, it depends. You know, I have I have my ups and downs with Eli, but uh, I I did enjoy this film. I just I come to it with some final reservations. So. So you talked about the last time that you were on the show when we did Who Can Kill a Child, which is one of my favorite episodes oh, that we have done. And when you were on that, you were just on the edge of having your book come out, Sex, Sadism, Spain, and Cinema, the Spanish Horror Film. Now, how did that go, and what is next for you? Well, thank you, Mike. Yeah. Uh, so when I was on, yeah, when I was on there, I was still in. I was still writing. I was maybe eighty-five, ninety percent done, and still had some some stuff to do. 
but I delivered the manuscript not long after that. About six months later, I delivered the manuscript and then took some time to, you know, obviously there was, uh, I had to work with the, my editor and get things together. But uh, the book did come out earlier this year uh, in June. And I'm thrilled to say that uh, the early reviews, because sometimes reviews can take up to a year, but the early ones have been all very positive. Of all the ones that have come out, I, I have them all right now. There's there's not one that has uh, any criticisms really. It's been very positive, which is great because you write a you know you write a book in a vacuum. You don't you know you your editor reads it and and uh, you know other people have looked it over, but like ultimately you're waiting for the public to respond. And so it, since they've responded so enthusiastically, I've been humbled by that. And so it's, it's, it's still fresh out of the, you know, um, the paddock there. It's only six months, but I've uh, accepted a position at a new university. And um, as part of my research agenda, I'm planning a trip to uh, Germany to start scoping out my next area, my next book, which would be a book on the German Krimi. I'd like to do a, you know, a book length study on the Rialto and CCC era of the Edgar Wallace Crimi cycle from, you know, roughly the late 50s to the very early 70s, those 20 years and those basically those 40 films and do a sort of cultural history of them. I think uh, I'll head off and start doing research in, at the National Film Archive in Berlin and start setting up interviews with key filmmakers and, and actors and, uh, and technicians and those who worked on them, the ones that are still with us. That's my next project, pal. Yeah, it's really strange. I got this weird Facebook message where it said, can you please do me a favor and log into Goodreads and vote 10 stars for one of our generation's best uh, writers, Nicholas Schlegel's <laughs> new book. Uh, so but I don't know. Six uh, bucks, Mike. <laughs> six bucks, yeah. The highest bidder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, David Friedman of, the, of Goodreads, basically. But that's the uh, that's the next project really is the Crimi. You know, I've I've already written a little bit about it with Jess Franco, and there are two scholars, Sasha Gerhards and Tim Bergfelder, who've done remarkable work on the Crimi. But a book length study has yet to be done, so I accept the challenge. Well, that sounds fascinating, actually. So it's it's definitely one of those areas that I don't know nearly about. So somebody of your stature going in and. Taking a look and reporting out is fantastic. Uh, yeah, that's the goal, and I thank you for that compliment. That's very kind of you coming from you, Mike, so I really appreciate that. Well, you know, I can't know everything about everything. <laughs> right. <else. laughs> right, that's why I'll write the book, because I'd like to read it, and no one's written it yet. I find when I talk to authors, those seem to be some of the best books, or the ones where it's like, well, I waited 20 years, nobody ever wrote it, so... I decided to take the challenge, and that's and that's what I did with the the Spanish horror film. I just you know other uh, other authors had written about it in Spanish, just but uh, not really in English. So it was a perfect time for the market uh, on that book. But um, that's uh, that's the plan. Uh, that would be the next the next uh, the next project. So yeah, I'm excited about it. Well, thanks again, Nick, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you showing up again. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mike. You know, we're we're just so kindred with with our adoration of this film, and and I really do hope that listeners will will be so like impressed with our love for Death Game that they'll seek it out themselves. Like I said, Rich Osman didn't send me a lot of VHS tapes back in the day, but this was definitely one of them, and it was one of those game changers or Death Game changers, as it were. <laughs> Well, thanks again, Nick. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back with our regularly scheduled episode on Wednesday. Until then, make sure to look both ways before you cross the street. Who's the man?
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.